0: You are listening to The Quantum Leap Podcast, Episode 40, A Little Miracle, Phase 3. Hello, everybody. I'm Christopher DePolibbis.
1: And I'm Suzanne Smiley.
0: And you are listening to The Quantum Leap Podcast. Welcome, welcome as we gather here once again to witness a little miracle. Suzanne, do you know now this is the third time that the Quantum Leap Podcast is covering this episode?
1: I suspected that. Uh, I wasn't sure how many times they had actually done it. but um.
0: Well, it's, it's crazy because Albie and Heather decided, I guess a couple of years back, to break the timeline of, of the show and do a Christmas special about this episode. And then just last Christmas that passed, we covered it again with new segments from QLP staffers Hayden and Amanda. And there was singing and it was audio drama. It was just nuts.
1: <laughs> Oh, my goodness.
0: So the show is back up in the rotation, and here we go again.
1: This time, Chris and I are getting into the act, bringing you yet more new Quantum Leap Yuletide goodness.
0: Yeah, and chief among the new presents, we have an awesome interview with actor Jarrett Lennon. Now, Jarrett is the one who played the tiny boy in this episode. He's the one that goes on to Charles Rocket's lap with the little rocking horse, and he's just like this moppet. Um, He told me about his time on the set and working with Scott and working with Dean and working with Charles. He had a really good time working with Charles. And I I think, you know, he was so great. We had a blast talking about his acting career beyond Quantum Leap and after Quantum Leap. He's played so many roles on so many TV shows. Just a smart, funny guy. So stick around for that. We'll be bringing you him later in this episode. But this is a weird one, Suzanne, because... Since we've covered this so many times, and Albie is such a lunatic, he wants to inception this. That's what he said to me. We're going to inception a little miracle. So it's going to be shows within shows within shows. First, it's going to be you and me talking about this episode as a little bit of a fresh take. And then we'll invoke the ghost of Christmas past, and we'll listen to what Hayden and Amanda did back in December. And they, in the course of that, throw to Albie and Heather – who did the show originally a couple of years ago. So so it's wheels within wheels within wheels, and it's just a, a giant Christmas mess. <laughs> 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 but once we get through with all that, we will be bringing you that interview with Jarrett Lennon. So stick around. For the main discussion, and then the main discussion, and then the main discussion, and then we go to Jared. <laughs> Sound good, Suzanne?
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> so if you've heard it all before, you can always fast forward to the end. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Albie's going to love hearing that. Yeah, just fast forward to their parts. Listen to us, and then just go to Jared. That, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. So so let's get on with it, though, because I got to tell you, I'm so happy that Albie asked us to come in and, and pinch hit for this episode since he's already done it, since Hayden's already done it. I love this episode. Suzanne, so can you tell yeah, me, me too. yeah, what are your general thoughts of this episode? What are your memories of it?
1: Um, first of all, I watch this episode every Christmas. Um, <laughs> it just kind of gets me into the mood. Since back when it first started, I, I just, I love, I don't know, there's just so much to love about it. Not only does it get you into the Christmas spirit, but I love their their take on Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, I love how Al just like especially at the end when he's the the ghost of christmas future how he just like totally gets into it and i could totally see just them having just so much fun with it just beyond acting you know beyond their actual characters but with Dean and 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 Scott just just they must have had a blast with this episode
0: I think you're absolutely right I think Dean this is an all-time Dean episode yes with the way he does it and when you speak of the acting that's what struck me I mean I don't watch this every Christmas I've watched it now three times in the last couple of weeks and it's the first time I've seen it maybe since college I, I'm a bad quantum oh, wow. leap fan I'm sorry <laughs> but I forgot what an awesome episode this is and When I look at the acting and I look at everything that goes on in it, it is so over the top. And none of it should work, but it just (laughs) knocks it out of the park. It's just an amazing episode. I I, I, Maybe it's just because I'm fresh off of it. Now I want to put it in my top five. Like, I think it's one of the best episodes they ever made.
1: It really is. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Oh, I was probably in high school. Um I I got in I got into uh, Quantum Leap a little late, um, only because I was too young to stay up until ten o'clock on Wednesday <laughs> nights to watch it initially. So um, when they started replaying it on the uh, the USA Network, um, I it, it was like at seven or six o'clock at night every night. That's when I started watching it. My whole family got into it, and um, so I was probably oh gosh fourteen when I first saw it. So that was like, I'm going I'm to date myself now. It was like 1992, maybe. So, <laughs> Well, I mean,
0: you're not dating yourself. I, I think I was 22 when the episode <laughs> came out. And I was in the middle of college. I, I honestly do not remember whether I watched it first run or not.
1: Yeah, I definitely didn't.
0: Yeah. I, well, it's an episode that, that's sort of like always been in my memory. But considering that Quantum Leap was maybe the only TV show I made time for in college, um, hmm. Well, nobody cares when I saw it first anyway, (laughs) because here I'm thinking in my head, I'm saying, but it was at Christmas, so I might have been home on break, and who knows what I was doing then. Suffice it to say, uh, I I had pleasant memories of it, but not very specific memories, and being um, invited to revisit it for this, it's just put it over the top for me, and like I said before, I mean, to me, so much of this episode should not work. Charles Rocket's character is a caricature, if you think about it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So Blake is over the top. Downey yes. is kind of over the top in her proselytizing <laughs> and her bringing in the cheeves and... Um, there's so much like weird expository dialogue, <laughs> you know, but for some, I don't, I, I don't know if, it, if it's just the feeling of the episode that makes it work or the, the, the talent of Charles Rocket and Melinda McGraw, who is also just distractingly beautiful in this episode. I mean, I, I don't
1: know. I actually love both of them as actors. Um, I, I love watching, uh, Melinda McGraw in, uh, NCIS. Cis. Um and and in other things, but like every time I see her, I'm, I that's the first thing I ever saw her in was this episode of Quantum Leap. So I'm like, I'm like, it's Captain Downey. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know that you had mentioned Al and his turn as the ghost of Christmas Future. Yes. <laughs> I mean, what did you think of, of Dean doing that?
1: I just. Uh, he, he was just—I uh, don't know—he was awesome. I mean, I just love how like like he's—he starts just bouncing up and down like in Glee, sticking his tongue out like just—he just loved to be like just like freaking out Blake and um and just because you know he's he's a hologram usually, so people can't see him, so it's very you know seldom that he actually gets to interact with other people that Sam's interacting with, and I also love the fact that like Sam is just like totally acting like. I believe you but I don't. Like, you know, I'll protect you. He's like putting his hands out in space, <laughs> like, you know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so and I love how Dean punctuates the end of every line with, ooh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's like if you can tell it's like it's like a veteran actor having fun acting badly. Yeah. Yet he somehow yeah. he pulls it together. Yes. And just like the ha, ha ha, the fake laugh as he <laughs> as he floats up and Yeah, I mean Dean Dean really, really nailed it in this one. And I, I guess that's, you know, it, it's funny you're saying because I think this episode breaks a lot of paradigms in the sense that you have Dean front and center being able to affect the resolution of mm-hmm. Sam's leap. But I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one that noticed this or maybe, maybe it only, it just struck me that Sam takes a, a, a real back seat in this leap. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is really a Charles Rocket show. I mean, he carries this episode along yes. with the scenes with, with McGraw. And what I loved about it is that, you know, Sam slots in naturally, but he's not the driving force, True. yet it still feels like an episode of Quantum Leap. And some of the subtle stuff that goes on in the background, yeah, this is a great Christmas episode, but it's also maybe one of the funniest episodes. Mm-hmm. And I think, in my opinion, that's when Quantum Leap works best is when they're playing off each other for comedic value. And Definitely. Sam is so out of his depth. He's he's coming to like bikers and boxers and DJs and when he's piercing he just doesn't know what to do with himself.
1: (laughs) Which also makes it hilarious, (laughs) right? And you see like just the just in the beginning with the I mean you know first of all you know the leap in when he's like looking up at him with his. (laughs) powdered <laughs> boxers and then just like from like the intercom to like not wearing knowing oh, the foyer you know like, not knowing like where anything is and them just looking at him like he's crazy and
0: <laughs> that intercom scene is probably the funniest <laughs> one in the episode i think because he just doesn't know how to work it he's like hello yes. hello yes. hello
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah so,
0: yeah so kudos to scott on that one and maybe he had fun too just playing the comic relief you know yes that's what makes it more watchable a lot of the time in my opinion i mean some some christmas especially when you're doing dickens there's Mm
3: -hmm.
0: it's very pro forma like you know okay they're going to have the scrooge they're going to see the ghost of christmas past the ghost of christmas present the ghost of christmas future and then tiny tim will say god bless us all everyone and everybody will end happy and they did do that here but they just embody the spirit of it. They don't do it beat for beat for beat like so right. many other shows do when they're doing their takeoff on Dickens.
1: Just like when Blake's like, Jacob Marley wore the chains. <laughs> so it's like, and he's like, and, you know, Al's like, I don't care. Like, shut up. Like, I am the ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> I think that's also
0: kudos to the writer Sandy Fries because another thing that subverts sort of the quantum leap paradigm in this episode is that Blake is sharp as attack. -hmm. When he sees Al the second time, he remembers him. Yep. He's like, and so many times in, in Quantum Leap or other shows, for the sake of the show, for the sake of the plot. Blake would be like, "Who are you? You're the No, no, no. You're that jerk from the lobby."
1: Yeah, you recognize him through all the makeup and everything. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so so there you go. It's like, "Well, okay, maybe the heroes aren't actually being as effective as shows usually require heroes to be." You know, they usually yes. get someone of an easy pass. And Blake doesn't give anybody an easy pass. He no. he turns around, he sees Sam talking to thin air. Yes. And he doesn't, you know, like it's. It always amazes me. Like Sam is what four feet away in a room talking to Al, and nobody seems to notice.
1: No, but he did. <laughs>
0: right, and he's just like, oh, who are you talking to? <laughs> you know? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, yeah. I thought that that was a nice little touch for this episode as well, and it just again it shows you how well Charles Rocket sort of nails it because. Again, it's this weird, awkward moment, but he plays it so smoothly and then the show just goes on and a lot of the stuff that just shouldn't work and pointing out even flaws in in the format of the show, tongue in cheek, yet the episode comes together so magnificently.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I've I've always loved um, Charles Rocket. I loved him in... uh, uh, He was... I don't know if anyone remembers because uh, uh, Touched by an Angel was a very popular show with with Andrew as the the Angel of Death, but actually Charles Rocket played the first one in the first season. He was actually, before Andrew came along and made the, when the show became really popular, Charles Rocket played Adam, the first Angel of Death. And uh, I always... You know, again, I was like, "Hey, look, it's Blake from Quantum Leap," um, and uh, I just I loved him in that, and I was actually pretty sad when he was replaced. Yeah,
0: I have. I, I don't think I've seen him in much of anything else besides Quantum Leap, and I recall that he was in a season of Saturday Night Live when I was about eleven years old, and that's when <laughs> I first started watching the show. So I remember uh-huh. him from that because. That was sort of my inaugural season of SNL, and I don't think mm-hmm. anybody in that cast survived past a year except for Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo, and uh-huh. then it became, you know, the juggernaut that it was in the early 80s with the buckwheat, and uh, I'm right. from Jersey, and you know, it was the Eddie Murphy-Joe Piscopo show for a while, so <laughs> I, it, it's weird that I remember Charles Rocket from there, but I can't remember any characters he did, I can't remember any sketches he did, so whenever I see him, I just think Quantum Leap. Because he was such an effective Blake.
1: Speaking of sketch comedy, I think it's funny that, uh, you know, since we have the interview with with Jarrett Lennon, I was uh, looking him up on IMDb last night. And I realized that he actually was in a couple episodes of uh, Mad TV. And um, I had to watch one of the ones in particular I remember because I had recorded it um when it first came on it was it was like a series of bad tv um fake commercials and one of them was uh McDumpsters and it was it was it's so funny because like here's another like Another scene where you know it's it's a bunch of homeless people and they're all waking up in the morning just like the old McDonald's commercials. They wake up and get the coffee, but they're all like walking down the streets and like they're all wearing ragged clothes. And the, the the dad puts the kid, which is which is Jared, into the dumpster and he starts pulling out all the food and giving it to everybody. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and like I didn't realize at the time. I never realized at the time that it was it was the same actor and uh, it just made me laugh because like as suit I-, I found it on um, on YouTube last night and I played it back I'm like oh my gosh that's him that's the kid with the three-legged horse
0: yeah right and he's, <laughs> he's uh, yet another like coal-smeared urchin right is he <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, we talk about that just sort of the type that he was so stick around for the interview I mean he's got a great sense of humor and um, he had he Good. had some some stories about uh, just working on sets as a child because that's when he primarily did a lot of his stuff and mm-hmm. it was fun to ask him because he doesn't act like other child actors. And I thought that he was so effective in this episode of Quantum Leap because Mm -hmm. he just seemed so natural sitting on uh, Blake's lap. And he didn't overact. He wasn't looking off camera for his cue. So yeah, people, please just stick around for our chat with Jarrett Lennon. He's the best. But Suzanne, let's let's just get back to this episode. One thing that I did notice that you don't see anymore, and Jarrett was a big part of this in the episode, was all of the music now i know that we've had a lot of problems with dvd releases of quantum leap and them switching out the music
1: i did my segment on that's the first segment i did for uh, the podcast was
0: yes right so you're the expert on that now
1: <laughs> yes. i want to ask you a question a because
0: bit. i have been watching quantum leap on the nbc website here in the states for those overseas i know you can't get it outside of the united states it seems but mm-hmm. in rebel without a clue and uh, it looks like for Runaway coming up, they're keeping all the original music on the NBC website. And in this episode, there was so much Christmas music
3: that was mm-hmm.
0: just so wonderful. And they even spent, I think it was like a full minute with both Jared and Charles and Sam and Melinda singing um, Joy Deck the, the Hall. Joy to the World. Joy to the World. Yep. Now, you don't see that anymore on TV. Everything no. is so quick cut now. Mm-hmm. It's so wonderful just to settle into a moment like that. And I think it's another, and this is not, this could sound like a weird pun, but another reason why this episode sings. It, mm-hmm. it, it, it gets to inhabit like this whole Christmas, uh, universe, I guess. I
1: don't know. Yes.
0: And I was wondering, because this is Christmas music, did that kind of stuff survive the d v d transfers? because I know a lot of this was maybe popular christmas music of the time that had to be licensed
1: um, I think the only one that was licensed there was one was it um oh gosh, I can't remember the song it was right in the beginning um uh there there was only like two, but they, they're, they're, they were like um Oh gosh. I
0: think they had had Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Uh, yeah, when, but they, when Sam was yeah. gonna, that sounded like Andy Williams or, or Perry Cuomo or something.
1: Yes. So I, I don't remember which ones they are, um, who sang them, but maybe it was easier for them to get because they were older. I don't I'm not sure. Um, you know, a lot of the, the more modern stuff, modern, you know, quote unquote for the show um like from the the 60s and 70s and even 50s might be harder to get than some of the older. I'm not really sure, but I guess it wasn't we really wasn't a very music intensive episode like other ones. So mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And um, I guess if you're going to swap out music, it's probably far easier to get generic Christmas music that'll right. work for this as opposed to you know, when they're actually referencing specific songs, but the song's not playing anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah.
1: And, well, and and the majority of the music they produced themselves, so so that's another uh, way around it, you know, they were singing it themselves.
0: That's true. That's true. And uh, I wonder if that was Melinda McGraw singing in those scenes, because they sure had her character belting it out, but that could have been ADR. Or the- Matt Dale could probably <laughs> tell us that. Matt, let us know. <laughs> (laughs) You know, who sung what in this episode? Because if it was Melinda, she's got a good voice.
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure. Another thing that I found interesting is um, during the end credits, they actually played like an alternate cut of the Joy to the World song.
0: Oh, really? See, I didn't stick around for the end credits because, again, bad fan. Sorry. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, that's the thing. Like, if you had watched it, I'm not sure if when it originally aired, if you know cuz you know these days you never get to actually see the end credits they always chop them up or they just have commercials running during them mm-hmm. or whatever back when it originally aired you probably were able to at least see the ending although a lot of times still you had like announcers talk over it yeah um but yeah they did a completely different cut of that joy to the world scene and um at the very very end sam and al say merry christmas so it's just it's adorable, and I like it because, um like I said, like it's completely different camera angles and everything from the actual one that was in the show, so it was kind of like just like an extra little Christmas treat. it was a much cleaner, crisper recording of it then in you actually hear in the show because like you don't hear any ambient noise or anything you know hmm. it was actually like like a studio recorded you know version of it so it was really i i really enjoyed that in fact i like to make um i've made a lot of mp3s from since there's so much music in the show yeah um i like to record them and make mp3s and and play them back um for my own personal use and i actually chose Rather than the one, the take from the episode, I used the one from the end because it's just so, just so nice.
0: Was it kind of like, uh, did they break the fourth wall to say Merry Christmas or, cause I'm thinking, it's, you're making me think of the end of Catch a Falling Star.
1: Um, no, it's, you just hear them. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. You,
1: yeah. You just, you just hear like the voiceover. It's still showing the scene. It's still showing like after they sang the song, you sh- you see Sam and he's kind of like, like nodding and smiling, like, yeah, that was a, that was a good, you know. Good song, and uh, and then you just hear them say "Merry Christmas," and I'm like, "Oh, so cute!" I never noticed that until I got the DVDs. (laughs) I'm going to charge
0: you with making me an MP3 collection of all the Christmas music (laughs) in this episode, uh, because I think it would be a perfect accompaniment to my opening gifts every year.
3: Yes, yes,
0: it's just everything was just so wonderful, right down to the music. Now I know that they discuss this later on in the podcast, but tell me what you thought about the end with the star. I, I think that that warrants a, a fresh take from both of us.
1: I loved it. I loved it.
0: <laughs> Yet another element that was over the top that should not have worked, yes. but was somehow perfect.
1: <laughs> um, Yeah. I mean, I don't remember. How, I mean, I thought it was like the coolest thing ever, you know, back when I was a kid, the first time I saw it. Um, I think I actually shed a tear when I watched it last night because knowing what, what was coming, you know, I was just like, it's just so perfect. It's just, you know, like you said, over the top, but somehow it works.
0: Yeah, and talk about shed a tear. When, when Blake is on the ground, you know, just saying, I don't want to die alone, it yeah. choked me up every time I watched it. Yes. You know, testament to Charles, again. Thank you, Charles Rocket.
1: He's, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, I, I hate to go on a bit of a, a morbid turn here, but um, it's, it's almost kind of weird how it was a sort of a premonition Yeah. Um. You know, considering the way his life ended, and considering you know what what Al said was going to happen to Blake. Um. I mean, I don't don't recall if this was mentioned earlier, but uh, if you look at the dates on Blake's tombstone, he was um fifty four, I think. And um and Charles Rocket actually died at fifty six. So it's yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) it's
0: funny. It's it's horrible that. Um, every time we discuss this episode, because I think both Amanda and Hayden discuss it, Albie and Heather discuss it, but you can't get yeah, around it. No. The terrible fate of, of poor Charles Rocket. In Such that a he, great actor. Yeah, he took his life, um, much like Blake did. And it, it's its just yeah. sad. I, I don't want to dwell on that because no, no, we dwell no, on but- <laughs> it a lot. But it can't not be said. And it right. really is a tragedy. Because who knows yeah. what could have been ahead for him. If he could make this script work, God damn yes. it, that guy could do anything. <laughs>
1: I know, I know, but the the star at the end, oh, I mean, it's just. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just loved it. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't apologize. I just no,
0: no, it was it was the perfect sort of again. This episode is so schmaltzy, yeah, and that's like the schmaltiest schmaltz, but it never comes off as like saccharin. And and no. and again, I think it might be because of some of the subversive humor in it. When Al is <laughs> that scene that I was just talking about, where Blake, you know, crumbles onto the sidewalk, bawling yeah. his eyes out. Like a, a minute before that. Alice saying, You got nothing. Zero. Nada. Zilch. And you see Sam in yes. the background yes. nodding his head, like yes. mouthing with Al, like gleefully breaking this man's spirit. <laughs> like that's not Sam. <laughs> Yeah, you know he's having too good a time torturing this poor bastard.
1: <laughs> but then, but then at the end, you know they put the star up there, and he goes and knocks on the door. he, you know, says, "Uh, comes to the door," and and Blake says, "You have room for one one more lost soul." And I just lost it. I was like, "Oh, I love it!" <laughs> I just started crying. You know, <laughs> just yeah. like <laughs> it, it works. It works,
0: man. It fires on all thrusters, and it works. And yes, it's funny. Also, the limited use of stock footage in this one. The only thing that we really got to give you a flavor of actual New York is that that still shot of Rockefeller Center with the angels Mm -hmm. blowing the trumpets. Yeah. Yet I never felt like we weren't in New York. A lot of times when Quantum Leap, especially if they're doing uh, like Brooklyn, double identity. Yes. That felt like Hollywood backlot Brooklyn. Uh Uh-huh. But for some reason, I don't know if it's because they shot a lot of it in the dark or maybe it was just the the sort of the, the snow or... It was a lot dirtier, a lot grittier. I felt like they were in New York in this episode. I know they weren't. I know they were in L.A. Right. I know they were in Universal's New York Street or whatever. But again, another thing that just really worked.
1: Oh, believe me. Believe me. I know. Because in, um, was it uh, Leap of Faith, where he's the priest? Yeah. It's supposed to take place in Philadelphia? And they are at the cemetery, and in the distance, you can see really tall palm trees. And I'm like, well, there's a- that just takes me out of the scene right there. <laughs> no,
0: that was just a, a especially flat place in Philly that had a really long view. I mean, it went past the Earth's horizon. Florida. That's how long that <laughs> – you could see all the way to Miami. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, must be. Must be. Must have been uh what's that um uh Belmont Park or whatever. Uh, no, you <laughs> don't
0: a- you don't know the famous Miami <laughs> Hill at Belmont Park?
1: <laughs> no, no, I mean in Philly. All
0: right. I know I said this this leap broke a lot of the show's paradigms, but one that really struck me on my third viewing now is is this Sam's like shortest leap? You gotta figure it happens in less than a day. He leaps mm-hmm. in in the morning and Blake is probably, you know, at midnight on Christmas Eve at the door of the mission saying, "Do you have room for one more lost soul?" Mhm. Uh, can you think of another leap that was that was as short that took place in the confines of 24 hours?
1: That's a good question, but I never really thought about it that way. So I don't really have an answer, but yeah,
0: yeah. No, it just it just struck me because they they never have to do a costume change. They never really have to right. do do anything but but what they're doing. And so much it's such a packed episode. It feels like it's going a couple of days, it's but true. it's not. It's 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 just a few hours. And
1: <laughs> it's almost in real time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: It's like a real time episode. I want Matt Dale could probably tell us. So once again, invoking uh, Matt's going to be the ghost of quantumly past, present, and future. I guess for us, <laughs> So <laughs> get on it, Matt. All right. Um, I know that, okay. So this might have been the shortest sleep, but we don't want to make this the longest episode of the podcast ever. And, uh, (laughs) I mean, I think I've said what I have to say How about you, Suzanne.
1: Yeah. I think we uh, covered a lot of ground.
0: Yeah. So, all right. So let's, uh, let's, let's hear what everybody else had to say. Uh, Cue the harps, the the sleigh bells, I don't know, but we are going to go to uh, the pre-recorded segment of this show. The first impressions of Hayden and Amanda, the first impressions of Albie and Heather talking about the episode, and then stick around right after that. We're going to hear from Jarrett Lennon. So ho 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 Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. <laughs>
5: a pair of Hopalong boots and a pistol that shoots is the wish of Barney and Ben that we'll talk and we'll go for a walk is the hope of Janice and Janet. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Toys in every store, but the prettiest sight to see is the holly that will be on your own the front door. It's beginning. You hear the sleigh bells ring, it's beginning, that mistletoe will swing, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas.
6: The doorbell. Who goes to somebody's house without texting them first? Whoa! How did this house get here?
4: Albie, Heather, I can't believe it. I, I, I got caught up in the hurricane. It pulled my house up off its um off its foundations, and I've ended up here. I don't think I'm in Oz anymore. Where, where am I?
6: Southwest Florida. And why is your house in black and white?
4: I, I have no idea. I can't believe it. We've always wanted to meet up, and I'm actually here. And it happened completely by accident.
6: Why are you wearing ruby red pumps?
4: (laughs) (laughs) They're they're just really comfortable, all right? And they make my butt look awesome.
6: I was going to say that. I was going to say
4: that. (laughs) Heather, you look amazing. Hi. Hi. Uh, I I can't believe it I'm over in America during Christmas time And there's no snow Why isn't there any snow? Trump (laughs) Uh, Okay, yeah Um, Is he going to send me to Guantanamo Bay Because I don't have any papers? Absolutely Uh, uh, Can I come inside then? Because I don't want that to happen
7: Of course
6: Absolutely (laughs) Uh, On one condition Yeah? You let me wear the heels
4: Oh, no worries so, um, it's near Christmas time, isn't it?
6: Yes, uh, we have the tree up, there's tinsel everywhere, and uh, we're just stringing up uh, popcorn for the tree.
4: Hi, <laughs> hey, Serenity. Hi, Hayden
7: and Amanda.
4: So, since it's near Christmas time, here's an idea. Why don't we watch A Little Miracle, which is the Christmas episode of Quantum Leap?
7: That's a wonderful idea.
6: We were just about to do that. We have it on Blu ray.
4: Oh, awesome, I haven't seen it in Blu ray. It's very 1080p. Awesome. And this 3D is amazing. It's almost like I can reach out and touch it. (laughs) Please don't. Yeah. (laughs) All right.
5: Awesome.
8: Pearson. You forgot to tell. Ah, yes.
4: Yes, well, tell. Now, Albie, I believe that you've already done a podcast on this episode.
6: I have. If you look back in the archives to the episode that's coming out right now, uh, we already did it.
4: Well, why don't we have a listen?
7: Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam
8: Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator... He awoke to find
7: himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, Striving to put right what once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap
9: will be the leap home.
6: You are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 39, A Little Miracle.
5: Monday, December 24th, 1962, the day before Christmas. I'm a 200-pound valet. Who's this guy I'm working for? Michael Blake, one of the richest guys in the country. He put more people out of work than the Great Depression. And me? Reginald Pearson. You've been picking up after Blake for three years. Why am I here? Well, that should be obvious. Well, to save the mission, I guess, but I don't know No, no, it's to save Blake. Blake? What does a man like Blake need to have saved? His soul. Well, he's a real Scrooge. (sighs) Al, you're a genius. Michael is Scrooge, right? He's alone, he's miserable. So? So? We Scrooge him. Hey, Blake, wake up! I am the ghost of Christmas future. Ooh. I'm here to show you your future. Ooh. I don't want to die alone. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean for it to end. Yes, sir. It's a sign, isn't it? I think so, sir, yes.
6: Hello and welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And we're talking about episode 39, A Little Miracle. Basically, it's quantum leaps version of charles dickens a christmas carol this is our holiday show so we figured we'd go ahead and cover this episode of quantum leap because it's the most Christmassy. it was suggested to us that we do this by one of our listeners hayden and uh i couldn't think of a reason not to since it's a time travel podcast there's no reason why we have to stay linear so heather what did you think of a little miracle
2: I liked their take on A Christmas Carol. It was cool to have a little glimpse into a future season of Quantum Leap.
6: This episode is not very spoilery at all, which is good. Otherwise, we couldn't do it. Is that a new word? Spoilery? Spoilery. (laughs) Not in 2015 like it is.
2: (laughs) You're not thinking fourth dimensionally. Exactly.
6: (laughs) One can watch this episode out of order. And not get spoiled by anything. There's a couple little things in the opening from shows we haven't seen yet. But Yeah,
2: but they don't give anything away. The only thing that was really different was the the hand link was a little bit different. And that was about it.
6: I think that was pretty much the final version, the cool one that everybody thinks of when they think of the hand
2: Yeah, it was a different look had a different look to it, but I, I like I liked it. It's a little update. And I liked that Al wasn't the brains of the operation as much as he is at least in so far in in what we've seen but Sam kind of came up with a lot of ideas this time and I liked that Al was seen by Michael Blake that was really cool
6: as soon as Michael Blake could see Al I was like okay I know what they're going to do here
2: I see I wasn't as smart as you with that <laughs>
6: Maybe because I went into it knowing that this was their take on A Christmas Carol. If I didn't know that, maybe I wouldn't have thought of it ahead of time. But as soon as I knew he could see Al, I was like, oh, they're going to mess with him.
2: Yeah, I guess that that makes sense. I I just kind of went in blindly, I guess. But um, I, I have never seen him be acknowledged except for Mrs. Melny when he was yelling at her in the car. So it's cool that that is a possibility.
6: It'll be interesting to see in between the past and the future, if other people can see Al or not, like we did.
2: <laughs> well, how could you miss him in that shirt? <laughs> uh,
6: that's the second time he wore a crazy, loud, short-sleeved summer shirt.
2: Well, that one was like a Rocco's Modern Life shirt. Did you ever watch that show? Not at all. Well, if if you look up Rocco's Modern Life, it's a bunch of, like, I don't know, shapes like that, triangles and crazy shapes.
6: The last time I saw Al in a weird shirt like this was in Double Identity, and it's pretty much their shortcut into saying, yes, it's winter where you are, Sam, but where I am, it's middle of July. Heather, can you read the episode recap?
2: Sure. Season 3, Episode 10, A Little Miracle. Original broadcast date, December 21st, 1990. Teleplay by Sandy Fries and Robert A. Waltersdorf. Story by Sandy Fries. Directed by Michael Watkins. On Christmas Eve, Sam leaps into Reginald Pearson, who is the valet to business tycoon Michael Blake. Michael is a thoroughly unpleasant man, though he is opposed to firing Sam despite his incompetence as a valet and his meddling in Michael's personal life, who is planning on tearing down a Salvation Army building in order to build Blake Plaza. He also just happens to have very similar brainwaves to Sam, and so is able to see Al until Al changes the frequency slightly so that Michael can no longer see him. Sam is sympathetic to the Salvation Army and so promises Captain Laura Downey that he will find a way to save the building, with her help of course. When Sam is ordered to sort through Michael's suits to find which ones to save and which to give away, with heavy input from Al as Sam knows nothing about clothes, He finds a box of memories in the closet, which reveal that Michael changed his name and used to be a poor orphan living on the same street as Blake Plaza is to be built on, and that he is trying to show the world just how far he has come by building the tower there. Sam convinces the chauffeur to let Sam drive Michael to his meeting and ends up taking him to the Salvation Army building. He stops the car, and one of the local kids comes over and lets the air out of one of the tires to give them an excuse to stop. When Michael gets out, After wondering how Sam thought this was a good route to get to the meeting he had, he is assaulted by memories of the past. Aided by several children playing and calling someone by Michael's original name, Captain Downey appears and denies having seen the boys. Caught up in nostalgia and charmed by Downey, Michael happily tells her about growing up here. When they stop to buy chestnuts, Michael recognizes the vendor as Max Wyszynski, an old friend that he had lost touch with. The two reminisce for a bit, and then Michael asks what happened to his old best friend. Max is forced to tell them that he became an alcoholic and killed himself after losing his job when the bakery became automated. As Michael made his money off of laying off workers like this, he is deeply upset. He tries to pay extra for the chestnuts, but Max just tells him to go. Blake pays him anyway. Michael storms off and then sits in his apartment getting drunk, and so Sam thinks that he has failed. Al believes that this is actually a good sign and that Michael is thinking about what he is doing, and so they put phase two of their plan in action. Sam tells Michael that he feels sorry for him because for all of his wealth and power, he's still missing something from his life. Michael angrily asks how he would know, and Sam bets a month's rent that he can prove it. Sam takes Michael back down to the site of the future Blake Plaza and has him put his hand on the side of the building, telling him that that path is just cold and Michael retorts that he has had people who loved him, but they all either died or left him, and that this building and his empire won't. Before they can leave, though, they hear singing coming from the Salvation Army building and go in. Michael is once again caught up in nostalgia as he joins the festivities and really starts to open up to Downey. Unfortunately, a little boy comes over to give Michael a Christmas present, and Michael recognizes him as one of the children from earlier and realizes that this is an elaborate charade to make him change his mind. Furious, he storms out and tells Sam that he had better hope he didn't still want to fire him in the morning. Sam was discouraged, but then he remembers that Michael can see Al and sends him in as the third ghost. Al chooses to go all out and dresses up as Jacob Marley, which Michael calls him on. Because Michael saw him earlier, he doesn't initially believe that Al is a ghost and keeps insulting him. Eventually, he tries to punch Al and falls right through him. After that, it doesn't take long to convince Michael that Al is really a ghost. Michael calls for Sam to get rid of Al, but Sam pretends he cannot see him. Al takes Michael to the Salvation Army building and shows him the future. Michael is delighted at the picture of the finished Blake Plaza, but then he sees a news report from 1975 featuring an older, bitterer him declaring bankruptcy. He sees that his tower has been renamed and that he eventually jumped from the top of it into oncoming traffic. Michael is horrified and breaks down sobbing. Sam convinces Michael that it's not too late to change, and a bright star leads Michael back to the Salvation Army's door, and Downey lets him in. Al reveals that the two of them marry in six months and have three kids. Michael still builds his tower, but he gives the first entire floor to the Salvation Army. Sam wonders if Michael would have knocked on the door if Al hadn't put the star there, but Al says that he didn't.
6: And that episode recap was from the Quantum Leap Wikia. Thank you very much.
2: Yes, thank you. So what did you think about this episode? I
6: liked it. And I like the fact that the show keeps getting better at what they're doing. Skipping ahead like we did, it was nice to see that uh, they finally got everything worked out to where they know what they're doing. In other words, uh, one of the first things I noticed was the uh, Leapy, Reginald Pearson, was a heavyset man. And... Uh, The suit that Scott Bakula was wearing was not tailored to fit Scott Bakula. It was tailored to fit this heavier man. And that's the way it would be because uh, a heavier man would have to wear a bigger suit. So Sam was wearing a bigger suit. So I like that.
2: Yeah, That was a pretty in-depth thought that they covered.
6: The mistakes they were making in season one and the beginning of season two, they're not making anymore. So that's nice to see.
2: Well, I think that that kind of goes with most shows.
6: For me, this episode was pretty much Scrooge without the comedy.
2: There was a no, there really wasn't any comedy in this one. Um, Yeah, it definitely was because it was a modern version of A Christmas Carol, which is, you know, like Scrooged. But all of his employees were scared of him, just like Scrooge. And he really didn't have a Christmas spirit. He had a Christmas tree, but it wasn't for any purpose. I mean, he didn't want the lights on. It was just like to show that he could have a big Christmas tree. Everything he did was just to show off. But he really had no one to show off to, so it was kind of all pointless.
6: It was almost like when he was a child and his mother died and when she was doing anything she could just to scrape by and then he was an orphan. He told himself, I'm going to be the richest, most powerful man in town. And uh, that's all that mattered to him. And he didn't care who he stepped on along the way.
2: Well, see, the thing about that is, is you know, that famous saying, money can't buy happiness. I mean, depends on if you have someone to share it with or not. I mean, what what's the purpose of having everything that you ever wanted, but nobody to share it with? Yeah, he has more paintings than the Guggenheim and he has all this money and all these buildings. But what Sam's point was when he was trying to have him feel the building, it's like there's no life here. Like there's no, there's no one to hug or or talk to or enjoy your life with. You can't enjoy your life with a building. You forgot the talk. That's just weird.
6: No, seriously, you forgot to talk. I'm waiting.
2: Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah, no.
6: Sorry. What's that about? I mean, I don't care how rich I was. I think I'm going to put my own pants
2: on. Like, there's high maintenance, and then there's that. <laughs> like that. I don't even think that counts as high maintenance. That's just beyond that's normal. A, that's a whole other level. Yeah.
6: That's. I wouldn't take that job.
2: Yeah, like, and he's been doing it for years. Yeah, poor guy. I guess the pay is pretty good.
6: (laughs) This episode, I noticed a lot of Reginald Pearson in Sam. He was acting totally different than we normally see Sam. He was very unsure of himself, very nervous, very fidgety, very... Just, uh, he lacked confidence. And I thought that was from his leapy, maybe.
2: In the beginning, definitely. But then as the episode went on, it wasn't as bad, But in the beginning, with him fumbling with the intercom and trying to find the newspaper, I felt so bad for him.
6: He leaps into a lot of different situations, but I think if I leaped into the situation he leaped into in the beginning of this episode, I would have been like, okay, you know what? I'm out. (laughs) Not it. (laughs) Because he was staring at a man's crotch, basically, a foot away.
2: Yeah, it was definitely a a different scene to open up to.
6: It just, uh, I would be like, you know what? It's probably not that important, so maybe just leave me somewhere else.
2: Well... As far as Sam is concerned with his leap situation, he at least knows he can't really do anything. I mean, he can't really go anywhere else. He's not going to go live his life as that man. He's got to get home. So he's got to do what it takes.
6: Yeah, he's got to accomplish his mission. Speaking of mission, I wish they hadn't called this the Salvation Army. I wish they would have just went with like... uh what they did in Star Trek, the original series, "The City on the Edge of Forever, just call it the mission, just a generic place to help people out that are downtrodden
2: that one charity,
6: yeah, just <laughs> just something non specific because that's one thing that kind of dates and affects this episode a little bit in the past few years. The Salvation Army has released statements that's kind of tarnished their image as of late, and um it doesn't go along with the Quantum Leap version of what is good and right, because there's at least one episode and one comic book of Quantum Leap that deals with homosexuality and hate towards homosexuals.
2: Um, But I'm sure that the writers of Quantum Leap had no idea that the Salvation Army would come out to have those beliefs. I mean... I understand why you're saying that that it should have just been like a generic thing. But who would have thought that the Salvation Army would come out with saying such hateful things?
6: Well, I'm not blaming the writers of Quantum Leap at all. They have no idea knowing what's going to happen 22 years in the future. Yeah. And nobody expected them to come out and say that. You would think they would be more enlightened and say, well, mm, I don't know what they would say. But uh, like I was saying, uh, Quantum Leap on two different occasions at least has uh, said, you know, Basically, what our philosophy is, is people are people. And And hate is bad. Hate is bad. And everybody should be treated equal. And uh, nobody deserves to die, in in my opinion, especially for being born a certain way.
2: Innocent people don't deserve to die.
6: Yeah. With Quantum Leap, it is very religious. But overall, it's the loving part of religion and not the hateful part of religion.
2: I think in the beginning, they kind of left it up to the audience as to who was controlling the leaping. But now that they have kind of hinted that it's God and he is the one who put the star there. At least that's what we're assuming, right? Is that... Oh, at the end? Yeah. Yes. So it has become a little bit more religious, but it's not really in your face about it either. Um, So those who aren't religious, it doesn't offend anybody. It's still kind of uh, just touching on religion a little bit.
6: Right. It makes it more of a supernatural fantasy type of entertainment, which uh, whether you are a believer or a non-believer, it's just good storytelling. So if they had used just a generic mission, it wouldn't have affected future viewings of it down the road.
2: Yeah, I I agree with that. When I when I saw the Salvation Army, I I was a little I don't know, I it was a little standoffish, the Salvation Army thing. But once you look past the name, it was fine having them in the episode. But like you said, if they had made a different name,
6: Definitely the people in the episode, they didn't seem to have any hate or malice towards anyone. They were just trying to help people.
2: Well, and also the Salvation Army as a whole, the top people of the Salvation Army might not represent the opinions of all of the people that work for the...
6: Right. I'm sure not everybody who is involved in the Salvation Army has the same views as that person that was interviewed. Right. And uh, as of today, this recording, it is still in their handbook and that's still what they believe. But, uh, you know, I was hired by a company and I signed a handbook and I never read it, so.
2: Yeah, and they're, uh, to this date, they still stand outside and ring the bells and people still donate. And ha- I mean, there's still n- not a lot has changed as far as stopping all of that.
6: Right. It's a difficult situation, but uh, hopefully in the future, that will get resolved.
2: Hopefully in our future, there will be more love than hate. And now I sound like a hippie, but... <laughs> um. <laughs> But really, I mean, if anything, this season and this time of the year is to love one another and appreciate the people in your life and celebrate the people that you have around you and the love in your life and not hate on other people for who they are or what they do or what they believe in.
6: I found something online that I think is really uh, fitting for this discussion. And uh, could you read that, Heather? Sure.
2: Sure. This is actually kind of fitting because it's kind of holiday related. Um, Okay. Being an atheist is okay. Being an atheist and shaming religions and spirituality as silly and not real is not okay. Being a Christian is okay. Being homophobic, misogynistic, racist, or otherwise hateful person in the name of Christianity is not okay. Being a reindeer is okay. Bullying and excluding another reindeer because he has a shiny red nose is not okay.
6: So I think that really uh, says it all.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're entitled to your own opinion. You're entitled to your own beliefs, your own faith, all of that. As long as you don't force it upon anyone else or bash someone for what their beliefs are, I think that everybody would get along. But (laughs) yeah, we should all just get along.
6: Exactly. And this is the time of year to get along. You ever notice around Christmas time, everybody's like in a happy mood and pretty much uh, willing to go the extra mile to help each other out and maybe donate to their favorite charity or give somebody that they don't know a gift or have somebody to their home for dinner. And don't you wish it could be like that all year round?
2: I don't know. I work in retail. (laughs) So there's that. Um, But yeah, for the most part, um, people are, are a lot nicer this time of year and more caring and more forgiving. And I I really do wish it could be like that all year long. I mean, if we can pull it off for a couple months, we should be able to, you know, do it at least most of the year.
6: So going back to the episode, uh, I noticed Mr. Blake's breakfast was a hard boiled egg and toast. And you see that in so many things for rich people, like they have that little egg stand and they break the egg open and they eat it with a piece of toast. I don't know why, but that I guess, is storytelling shortcut for I'm rich and important.
2: Man, if I was rich, there would be some bacon and lots of cheese involved and some hash browns. I mean, listen, if I had a cook, it would not be a hard boiled egg and some toast. I could do that by myself. I don't need a kitchen staff to make me a hard boiled egg and toast. I would an omelet, maybe some eggs Benedict. Michael
6: Blake definitely has a big staff. And uh, maybe that's why he went bankrupt in the future
2: when you're rich that's another criteria i think is having a staff of people of mostly unnecessary people um but i guess with that huge house he couldn't clean it all himself or do all the maintenance himself and that's the point of being rich you get to uh employ people to do the things you don't want to do and uh
6: back in 1962 when this episode takes place i'm thinking it was more like uh A lot of things were a lot less automated like today. And uh, it was more like the Flintstones where you needed a bird to take your picture and you needed an elephant for running water. So it was more like that. Like you could have anything you wanted to get done as long as you had enough people to do it.
2: Can we get an elephant for running water? Where do we sign up for that?
6: We already have running water. I think it would cost more to have an elephant.
2: But like, can you imagine having an elephant in your backyard? Like, hey, can you just water my plants? (laughs) Thanks, dude. So I noticed that speaking of his wealth, um, he kind of sounds disgusted talking about his mother's life and and that whole childhood part of when they're in the car and Sam asks him about the pictures or, you know, brings up his childhood Um, and, and he talks about his dad leaving and, you know, obviously he's upset about that. But the way he talks about his mom, he's so disgusted. Like that she died on her hands and knees on someone else's bathroom floor.
6: You would think he would be grateful.
2: Yeah, like doing what she had to do to give him any kind of life, though she, you know, didn't succeed as far as, you know, she passed away. But like being a mom and having to struggle as a single mom and do whatever you have to do to take care of your child, like the way he talked about her was just so bitter.
6: Maybe when he was younger, he made a very immature judgment of his mother about what happened and was angry and took it out on his mother and never changed his mind, like never took the time to think about it and understand.
2: Yeah, I I see where you're going with that, because, you know, he could have looked at her death as her leaving him and made it kind of a selfish thing because he is kind of a selfish person. But to get where he was, that's how he had to be. I mean, he he viewed his lifestyle as a child to be not acceptable and that he needed to have a better lifestyle and at whatever cost. So I, I don't know. I I don't know if I would be able to step on anybody I wanted to or I had to to get there. But I guess you you're either born with that or you're not.
6: So in this episode, I don't think they really had the time to do the three ghosts. So they just did the Ghost of Christmas Future, which was Al. Done very well, by the way. But I think taking the place of the Ghost of Christmas Present was Sam, because he was kind of letting him know where he stands right now. And the Ghost of Christmas Past, I think, was represented by the box of pictures.
2: Oh, that makes sense. But see, what's crazy is I I watched this episode twice. For some reason, the first time I watched this episode, I didn't realize that the children we reenacting a scene. I totally thought that was his memory that he was recalling things. And I didn't catch that at all. I just thought he looked around when he saw the kids and realized that the little boy sitting on his lap was fooling him. And like, that's, I just thought that that's what happened. I totally didn't realize that the kids were actually reenacting. I thought it was his memory.
6: I did not get that until my fourth time watching this episode. <laughs>
2: Well, then I don't feel so bad.
6: But um, I couldn't understand why he was mad at the children being there the first three times until the fourth time, like you said, and I realized everything that went on.
2: Yeah, well, when Al's prediction percent or whatever is is going going down and he's getting mad at the kids, I I was like, I think I missed something (laughs) because I don't really know. And then I just figured he thought the little kid with the horse was trying to make him feel bad you know like i that's what i thought and he just like looked around and realized what was going on but i didn't realize that the kids running in like i just thought that they were running in and like startled him into realizing what was going on if that makes sense but um yeah i didn't get that
6: well that's why i watch an episode repeatedly until i don't have that confusion feeling anymore (laughs) We don't have the benefit of having a podcast to go along with Quantum Leap, but with other shows that I watch, I like to have a podcast to go along with that show. And what I do is I watch the show and then I'll listen to the podcast and then I'll watch the show again. So it's kind of like you see things that you missed before or somebody else's opinion or observations on that episode. But for us watching this, we have to just watch it over and over until we get as much as we can out of it.
2: I guess that's kind of like the modern day commentary, but you can get other opinions. That's how I got into podcasts,
6: because I was so into bonus features and commentaries.
2: Yeah, see, I was never one for bonus features and stuff until I met you. And I'm now like such a junkie for it. I love the bonus features behind the scenes. Commentaries are pretty cool to hear. Well, podcasting really is kind of like bonus features or commentary because you get to hear opinions other than your own four people can watch an episode and see four different things so that's always cool to see a different point of view so it's basically the same thing just on a different platform
6: with me while i'm watching something i haven't seen before i'm like i can't wait for the movie or tv show to get over so i can get to the bonus features
2: i I don't think i'd go that far into uh (laughs) liking them that much it doesn't make sense but i'm being honest well i guess then when you watch it a second time you're not in a hurry right when you re-watch it then, then you enjoy it more
6: So one thing I liked about this episode is Blake calls out Al on being the wrong ghost because he's supposed to be the ghost of Christmas future, wearing a black robe and presumably being death. Instead, he's got the chains and trying to be more like Jacob Marley, which is the ghost that tells Scrooge or Blake in this case that he's going to be visited by ghosts. So Al was trying to get it all into one, I think.
2: But can you imagine Al not dressing up for the part? I mean, a black robe is so not Al.
6: No, this outfit that Al had on was awesome. It looked like the character was supposed to have done the makeup himself, kind of, and it had a black hand on his throat.
2: Like he was being choked by a makeup artist or something. Yeah,
6: and different color ears. I think
2: one was red and one was green.
6: Yeah, and he had lipstick on. Yeah. Red and green, like almost checker. So that was pretty cool. Uh, Just everything great about that outfit and the makeup with Al, but Al's always you know fashion forward, especially for back then.
2: But I'm sure that Al, as a character, loved getting ready for that. (laughs) Did he have a collar on
6: and no shirt? Is that what I saw? Or like uh, a low-cut shirt, but a collar? It was very interesting. We didn't watch this one in High Definition. We watched it on the Region 2 DVDs.
2: Well, I know that his shirt was all ripped and stuff. That might have been it. Yeah, maybe his collar was ripped away from his shirt. I don't
6: know. But they did a great job. But uh oh, speaking of a great job, the whole special effect where Blake goes to punch Al and he falls right through him. It looks so real and good. So
2: way to go. Season three.
6: Yeah, <laughs> definitely. The effects keep getting better. Oh, yeah. Like I could not tell he wasn't in that room except for Blake going through him.
2: And you know what? I really liked that Sam had to pretend he wasn't there. Oh, that was funny. He's like, okay,
6: I, if I can't get him out of here if I can't see him. And if for our listeners, I'm feeling around with my hands. I know that doesn't translate well to audio. <laughs> but uh, I just love that he did that. And it was great.
2: Yeah, I think that Al had a lot of fun with um, the way he acted as this ghost, how he changed his positions, jumped on buildings kind of thing. And he overacted a lot which is really cool like he that his facial expressions and the way he used his hands and the way he said things was just like really awesome because you know that al's not really like that in person but it was just really cool to see him out of his normal self
6: yeah al was doing a great job acting like the ghost of christmas future and dean stockwell was doing an awesome job as acting like al being the ghost of christmas future (laughs) Uh, Dean Stockwell's amazing. And uh, being one of the two leads of the show, and both of those guys, Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell, doing 97 hours of television and at that high quality level, it's it's pretty amazing. And they did a really good job.
2: Yes, they are both very amazing actors.
6: As we say a lot. Yeah. We like this show, by the way.
2: Just in case you were wondering.
6: (laughs) Blake lets it slip that he thinks... Captain Laura Downey is beautiful, and she is a very pretty lady, and I liked her acting in this episode. I liked her character. Um, I would recognized her, and it wasn't until our researcher sent me more information on her that I realized where I recognized her from.
2: Yeah, she's from uh, X-Files, right?
6: Yeah, she played Dana Scully's sister. So,
2: Well, that's really cool. To add to that moment where he... Calls her beautiful. Did you see Sam's face? He was like, hey, we might have gotten something here.
6: <laughs> well, right then I had thought, you know, this is going to turn out great. And like Al was saying, there's a 97% chance they're going to get together. But then when he started saying 96, 94, 92, yeah. I was like, uh oh, what's going on?
2: Well, there's always the love interest in a Christmas carol, right? In, really? in a Christmas carol, they well, go like back. Scrooge. He was in love. They showed, and when they went back to his his past, it was his young love and how in love he was. And so, trust me, the Muppets Christmas Carol is my all time favorite Christmas movie. So I I was going to ask, what is your favorite? So that's your favorite? The Muppets Christmas Carol, by far. Do you
6: have other favorites?
2: Um, Scrooge is good. I like the, uh, what Kelsey Grammer one. That one's good too. I mean, they're all pretty good.
6: I have a thing. Every holiday season, I try to watch as many different versions of Scrooge as possible. I don't know why. I think just because the story is very comforting to me and I enjoy it and I enjoy seeing it done over and over again by different people. Uh, I'd have to say probably Scrooged is my favorite. And uh, like the 1930s black and white one is really good.
2: For some reason, that one reminds me of the first Doctor Who, like the (laughs) Scrooge.
6: I wonder if it's the same guy, probably not. I,
2: probably not, but for some reason, the guy who plays Scrooge reminds me of the first Doctor in Doctor Who. The Patrick
6: Stewart one's really good.
2: Oh, yeah. I forgot about that one. There's so many. There's a, there's another one uh, with, was it Vanessa Williams?
6: Isn't there it, one with uh, Tom Arnold? There's so many like Hallmark yeah, ones. Yeah, yeah, there's
2: a Tom Arnold one too.
6: There's so many Hallmark Channel ones. There's so many.
2: Well, they redo the Christmas Carol and then the one where you replay Christmas every year. They redo those. Oh, so many times.
6: Because <laughs> we keep watching them. I keep watching them. Yeah. But I enjoy all those. I really do.
2: It's part of the Christmas season, right? If you haven't seen that story
6: at least once during the Christmas season, it doesn't really seem like Christmas.
2: Yeah, you're totally missing out. If you had to pick just one out of all those, what would be your favorite?
6: The one where Data does it on the holodeck on Star Trek The Next Generation. Okay. There's more gravy than grave of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a good... I have to watch that every year. I don't know. Um, Scrooged, I would say.
2: Yeah, that's a good one. It's very dark. Yeah, but it's got a good ending. Notice how mine's like the Muppets one where they're all like singing and lo- puppets. You
6: introduced me to that <laughs> one and I really enjoy that one. So I watch that every year also. I
2: honestly could not believe you hadn't seen that one. I love the Muppets. I
6: love A Christmas Carol. I just had never seen A Muppet's Christmas Carol.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a good one. If you listeners have not seen A Muppet's Christmas Carol, definitely go watch it. It's a happy-go-lucky. Well, I mean, it's still A Christmas Carol, but...
6: I wonder what the listener's favorite version of A Christmas Carol is. If you have a favorite version, let us know by calling 707-847-6682. Leave us a voicemail, and we just might use it in the show.
2: You can also leave us a comment on Facebook or send us an email if you are too shy to call in.
6: It's uh,
2: quantumleapodcast at com Or facebook.com slash podcast. You can also tweet us, also, um, at pod. There are many ways to get a hold of us, so please do. Yeah, because we want to hear if there are some that we haven't seen yet. That would be cool. Yeah.
6: I know right. I have a lot of Christmas movies to watch.
2: Yeah, I I love all Christmas movies. You know what? No, sorry. Is I there, don't love all Christmas movies. Is there one you don't like? The Christmas Shoes and the sequel to The Christmas Shoes. Don't watch that. I mean... <laughs> horrible.
6: I love Neil Patrick Harris. That's why I watch one of them, but...
2: Well, you didn't see the first one, did you? You just saw the sequel?
6: I knew from the song not to watch the first movie. I had no idea that the Neil Patrick Harris movie was a sequel to that. If I did, I might not have watched it.
2: Yeah, yeah, don't watch those. They're just too sad. I don't like sad Christmas movies. I like the happy Christmas movies. (laughs) I like the movies where everything's going good. Something
6: minorly bad goes
2: wrong. Mediocre. (laughs) Yeah,
6: towards the end of the movie, but then they get past it and everybody's happy.
2: Right, and it all ends with everyone by the Christmas tree right? and Merry Christmas, lots of hugs and kisses and everything's fine and there's cookies and... And those movies don't. Yeah, no, they, no.
6: So going back to the episode, Blake definitely knows the whole story of A Christmas Carol since uh, he calls Al out on who he's supposed to be and what he's dressed like.
2: I think everyone knows that story.
6: Sometimes people in the retelling of A Christmas Carol don't realize that there there was A Christmas Carol before. It depends on the universe. But he knows definitely, which helps with the shorthand, because all he needs is the ghost of Christmas future to show him his future. From 1975, the newscast where he goes bankrupt, and uh, they just made his hair a little bit gray. Yeah, he was wearing a wig. Yeah. So pretty bad. Pretty, but in the 70s, maybe people wore wigs. I don't know. At some point, people had to wear wigs, right?
2: Yeah. He might might
6: have went bald and needed a bad wig. (laughs) Was there a good wig in the 70s? I don't know. (laughs) You are totally right. (laughs) All he had to do was see he was going to go bankrupt. And then Al told him in this episode that he commits suicide because of his financial problems, which is kind of um, eerie, let's say, watching it nowadays, because turns out the actor who played Michael Blake did commit suicide. No way. Yeah, um Charles Rocket who played Michael Blake died on Monday, October 17th, 2005 of an apparent suicide. The manner and age of Michael Blake are a terrible unintentional foreshadowing of this event. Ouch. Yeah, I found that out when we were trying to contact him for an interview.
2: <sighs> yeah, I guess not. So, uh That's so sad. A horrible way that
6: life is imitating art. Uh I this brings up a topic of suicide, I guess around the holidays. Not a good thing, but it seems to happen a lot.
2: I guess it just highlights, if you're not doing so well, it highlights all the things that are going wrong in your life, Um, all the things you don't have.
6: Still not a reason to kill yourself. It seems that Charles Rocket didn't learn a lesson from this episode to where suicide is not the right answer.
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess not. But that's, it's a very sensitive subject because um, suicide affects a lot of people and For whatever reason, you know, they obviously think that it's the better option in that moment and it affects so many people around them. But in the episode, Blake didn't have anybody and all he had was his money. So when he lost his money, he lost everything. So at least in this episode, in the art form, not in reality, at least he, you know, realized that even if he lost his money, at least he has a family now in the new future.
6: Right. So he's got something to live for.
2: Yeah. But Christmas or the holiday time is hard because if you don't have family, you know, everywhere you look, it's about spending time with your family. Or if you don't have money, it's about spending money. Um, it it does highlight all of the problems that you have or the lack of support or family that you have during this time.
6: So it might push people with problems with depression over the edge,
2: maybe. Oh, yeah, Definitely it also puts a lot of pressure on people who do have family and maybe not a perfect situation with their family or, you know, people with anxiety, social anxiety or things like that. I know that uh, Christmas and holidays, all of that stuff can be really stressful to most people. And if you already have a, you know, predisposition for stuff like that, it can be really tough.
6: So on the way to my day job the other day, I was listening to a Mission Log podcast, and I found out that the actor who played Cyrano Jones on Star Trek, Stanley Adams, had committed suicide. And I was that, that kind of brought me down. And uh, while I was at work that day, uh, the building next to where I work is a hotel, and somebody committed suicide like three days ago, I think. Now, wow! It's the holidays and suicide. Uh, I just want to tell everybody out there if if you have any thoughts of suicide, it's it's not the answer if you don't have people in your life, if you think that life's not worth living, change your environment, move, find new friends, go somewhere else, do something. Being alive is always better than the alternative.
2: It's hard to actually act on those words. I mean, they they sound good, and they are definitely words to, to live by and, you know, advice to take. But When you are in a position that you feel like you can't go on and stuff like that, it can be hard to just hear those words and and act on them. But um, there's always somebody who thinks you're important and there's always somebody who loves you. You just have to reach out and find that person.
6: And it gets better.
2: That's always that's always a good phrase to live by. It gets better.
6: It does get better. And uh, one thing that I've heard from people who do commit suicide and don't succeed is
2: i was like have you been talking to those people lately
6: (laughs) no not not the ones that do succeed but the ones that don't succeed so they do succeed (laughs) um is as soon as they do whatever they were gonna do to kill themselves they immediately regret it so don't be that person
2: yeah most of the time you can't go back but um life is worth living yes Back to, lots of back. lots of touchy subjects in this episode. There's a lot to talk about, but I mean,
6: suicide happened in the episode, and it really happened in real life to the actor who played it. So,
2: yeah, it's just when when you've been in in a spot where you feel like you can't go on, and and you've been in that dark place where you feel like nothing could get better, and and things like that. I mean, I've never been in a, a spot where it's that dark and and that extreme but i know that everybody has bad days and i can't imagine being in a situation where my bad days are that bad and i just i want everyone to know that there really is somebody there's always somebody out there that will miss you if you're gone
6: i've been lonely before and depressed but i've never not wanted to live i love life no matter how bad it gets i love it you
2: want to live forever
6: Fame, I want to live forever. It's true. I want to live just long enough until they discover immortality.
2: You say that. <laughs> I don't know. I watch a lot of uh, vampire shows where they're all miserable because they've lived forever. Yeah, I don't
6: get that. Not me. Maybe they don't have cable. See, <laughs> I could, I could, see, there's so many shows right now. I don't have time to watch. If I live to a couple hundred, maybe I can watch them all.
2: That, that's your goal in life, to live forever so you can watch TV. <laughs> it's <laughs> not a good- like go travel or build
6: an empire or... I want to see the next Star Trek series. I want to see when they reboot Quantum Leap.
2: I want to see all that. I think we're starting to be in the era where they remake everything. So we might actually see a lot of that sooner rather than later.
6: (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. There's always something to live for.
2: When they remake it, are we going to have a a QLP too? Oh, we'll be right there.
6: What were the messages and meanings in this episode that we could take away from it?
2: Money can't buy happiness. Um... Being alone in a huge empire that you've built by stepping on everyone is not worth it.
6: Maybe love is more important than money.
2: Oh, I like that one.
6: Don't be a Scrooge. Don't be a Scrooge. If you own a business, give your employees the day off.
2: (laughs) I am lucky to work for one of those companies that gives me the day off. You are. And I get paid for it.
6: You you do. (laughs) And I'm very happy for you. But you are not one of those people. I am not one of those people.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, for those of you that have to work on uh, Christmas Day, we're sorry. And I'll be... can uh, He's right there with you. <laughs> He'll be working right right alongside you.
6: I sympathize with you. But I still love life. So I'm going to come home after work and be very happy and enjoy the holiday with my family. Yeah. Whatever holiday you celebrate, Hanukkah, winter solstice, Kwanzaa, Festivus, Christmas... Are there any others? Just no. a general holiday.
2: Wasalia. That's the new Disney Junior Channel uh, holiday.
6: Tell me about it. I like it.
2: I have no idea. There's no information on it other than the fact that it's not a real holiday. <laughs> uh, it is now. You mentioned it. They light a candle and there's presents. It's everything like Christmas, but there's no actual holiday called Wassalia.
6: I'm sure somebody celebrates it. And if you do, happy Wasalia.
2: Exactly. If you're at home watching Sophia the First with your children, happy Wasalia.
6: We celebrate all the holidays as just the basic holiday season, but we have a tree, we have a festivist pole, we have all kinds of things, decorations. I love the holidays. I really do. I love the movies. I love the music. I love these episodes of television that have the Scrooge storyline, which there's got to be over 100 by now between Welcome Back Carter, Three's Company, and M.A.S.H., And I could go on and on, but like, I think every television show that's gone more than a few seasons has always had a Christmas carol
2: storyline. Do you think they sit down in the meeting and they're like, it's time, it's time to do the Christmas carol story? I think they go, uh, it's time to do the holiday show. And, uh,
6: after about 15 minutes, if they can't come up with anything, they go a Christmas carol.
2: Yeah, It's either that or the Christmas repeating. Those are the two. Right after Groundhog Day.
6: Yeah. They went right to Christmas repeating.
2: Well, because, you know, the, the saying, why can't every day be Christmas?
6: Is it bad that sometimes when I watch the uh, Hallmark or ABC Family Channel movies, I think that this is going to be a repeating Christmas movie, and it's not, but I expect it to be? You kind of just expect it from every movie now. <laughs> what was a good one not too long ago?
2: The one with Jay Moore. That one was good. Oh, that is a good one. I like him. And I watched Pete's Christmas this year. That one was pretty cute. And if it's not the time repeating movie
6: for Christmas, uh, they redo "It's a Wonderful Life," which is my favorite Christmas movie, probably.
2: Yeah, I um, I get, yeah, they do redo that one, don't they?
6: Yeah, a the, lot, but it's a good story.
2: Or they do a combination of all of them. <laughs> this episode of Quantum
6: Leap was almost a combination of A Christmas Carol and It's a Wonderful Life.
2: I, yeah, I can see that.
6: But overall, I really like this episode, and I'm going to add it to my yearly holiday movie television show
2: list. Pretty soon you're going to have to start watching them, like, at Halloween to get to all of them by Christmas.
6: As it is right now, December 1st, I'm like, okay, we're starting the holiday movies.
2: Well, you know that they start in, like, November now? Like, on Hallmark Channel, they start way early, way before Thanksgiving.
6: We just skip Thanksgiving. There's not really a lot of Thanksgiving movies. Planes, trains, and automobiles, maybe. But other than that, not so many.
2: I don't feel like that is a Thanksgiving movie. I know you say that, but... It takes
6: place on Thanksgiving, and they're trying to get home for Thanksgiving. Yeah. And then the ending... They have Thanksgiving. Other than that, it's got nothing to do with Thanksgiving.
2: <laughs> but I mean, like, when I think of Thanksgiving, I'm not like, oh, yeah, planes, trains, and automobiles.
6: Spider Man Part One, that takes place on Thanksgiving, but that's not really it's a, not Thanksgiving. a holiday movie. But other than that, you go right to the Christmas movies, the holiday movies, the. You got to start early because they make more and more every year. I know. What's some of your favorite Christmas television shows? Like, every year I have to watch X Files, The Ghost Who's Told Christmas.
2: I don't think I have a favorite.
6: Well, you can watch the one I watch. So
2: I, I have now for the last couple of years watched that one, which is good. At least I know the whole story now.
6: <laughs> of that one episode. Of that
2: one episode. Well,
6: now add Quantum Leap, a little miracle to that list.
2: I've seen a 10% of X-Files and that one episode <laughs> a whole bunch of times.
8: Hey, this is MC from the Hater Nation Show podcast, thehaternationshow.com. Wishing all the Quantum Leap podcast listeners a happy holidays.
6: Due to the nonlinear nature of this episode, we're not going to do any listener feedback just because it would be out of place. If we had feedback from the future in the past, that could be dangerous. Or if we had feedback from the past in the future, that could be boring. At the end of this episode, there is what I like to call the... Credits. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of this episode, when Al is showing Michael Blake his future and projecting all these images... Finally, what gets him to go into the mission at the end is that shining star with the beam of light to the front door of the Salvation Army, and he goes in. And of course, we all assume that it's uh, Al and Ziggy in cahoots. But then, when uh, Sam says that star was a nice touch, and Al was like, uh, "That wasn't me." That's what I like to call the cane in the corner moment. The what? The cane in the corner moment, like uh, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, where at the end it's like, ah, oh, supernatural. Like, every Christmas movie, TV show has to have that little moment at the end. Like in the uh, Lucy Christmas special, they all dress up like Santa Claus to surprise little Ricky. But there's only four of them and there's five Santas. So that's the cane in the corner moment.
2: What exactly is the cane in the corner? At
6: the the end of Miracle on 34th Street, when the little girl gets the house she wanted and it's theirs, how did they get it? Ah, Santa Claus's cane is in the corner.
2: okay. Okay, yeah. So
6: every Christmas movie, I think, to do with Santa Claus anyway, or something like that, has that, like...
2: Is that like when they do the Christmas carol, they're always sleeping? Like they they go to sleep first, they either fall and hit their head, or they go to sleep and then they see the three ghosts?
6: I think that's a different moment.
2: But it's kind of like, leaves it up to question whether it really happened or if they dreamed it.
6: But every holiday Christmas TV show movie has that little moment that you don't really believe... What's going on is really happening until that little cane in the corner moment. So that's my cane in the corner moment for this episode of Quantum Leap. The Even though I think I'm pretty sure that Ziggy threw in the star and the uh, spotlight just to get the job done and let Sam get out of there.
2: On a different note, this might open a whole other can of worms. But why don't the parents believe in Santa Claus in the Santa Claus movies? Because they're the ones
6: buying the gifts. Until that cane in the corner moment where where did that gift come from? <laughs>
2: But, like, if there are gifts from Santa under the tree every year and the parents didn't buy them, I mean, like, that's what always got me when I was a kid. I'm like, but the parents don't believe. But the parents are the ones. I don't know. Sorry, that was totally off topic, but it was just something that Christmas movies have in them. Can you tell we like the holidays? Favorite time of the year?
6: Uh, I thought it was a nice, sweet moment at the end where uh, Al and Sam say Merry Christmas to each other and it snows.
2: And then they sing after the credits, right?
6: Yeah, they sing. During the credits, uh, they sing a Christmas carol.
2: <laughs> hmm.
6: <laughs> and uh, they, then they say, Merry Christmas, everybody. I like when they do that.
2: Yeah, it's not like a Tiny Tim thing.
6: Bless us all, everyone.
2: Something like that.
6: Mary Lou Retton makes an awesome Tiny Tim, by the way.
2: I don't know how that is.
6: So then Sam leaps onto a boat. That seems like a good episode that we'll get to either next week or in about a year and a half. <laughs>
2: Or a year and a half ago. Oh, no, it's the next one after this one. Oh, okay. Well, you know what I mean.
6: So whatever holiday you celebrate, we wish you a merry one.
2: We wish you a happy all of the holidays. Every single one. Yes. Enjoy them all.
6: The more the merrier.
2: The whole month of December. Enjoy the entire month and into January because that's when my birthday is.
6: I think I'll still be watching holiday movies in January because there's no way I'm going to watch
2: them all. Even if you start now, you have, we don't have enough time. TiVo's full. Why don't we make the whole year
6: a holiday movie year?
2: Because then it... Oh, I see what you did there. What did I do? You know, the whole, I wish every day was Christmas thing before the you relive Christmas every day.
6: That's a great idea. The TiVo's full of holiday movies. Uh, so is my DVD Blu-ray shelf. And uh, we just leave the tree up and the pole up and watch the movies. I leave the pole up. Happy Festivus.
3: Sing, Joy
5: to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the name. Prove
3: the of his righteousness and wonders of
0: Okay, okay, we're back. It's me and Suzanne Hi, we're back again. Hello. Hey, so as I promised, uh, we are here now with our interview with Jarrett Lennon. So, Suzanne, are you ready? Are you ready for this interview with Jarrett Lennon?
1: Yeah, can't wait. Take it away, Chris.
10: Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Jared. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, you played a Tiny Boy in the Quantum Leap episode, A Little Miracle. So can you tell us about yourself and how did you get into the world of child acting and how did it lead to that role of Tiny Boy?
10: <laughs> yeah, that was one of my most uh, descriptive character names. <laughs> uh, most of my characters actually had full names, but uh, this was clearly a, a Tiny Tim-esque character and I think they were playing off of that with the name. Yeah, my, uh, my acting career started very young i uh, my first job was when I was uh four and a half years old my mother at least the the version of the story that she's always told is is that a lot of people always said that I would be great at acting I had the the natural uh, personality for it and and charisma and she she supposedly didn't want to put me in it. She didn't want to be a stage mother. She didn't want to exploit me that way. But people kept trying to tell her. And she was working with Ed Asner at the time on some sort of uh, food program for Africa. And he specifically said, no, seriously, he'd be great at it. Plus, it would pay for his medical bills, because I had some some medical problems at the time that were kind of eating us up. And so that was kind of his suggestion of, hey, it would it would really help with those costs. So, uh, so she she took me to an agent who said, "All right, yeah, I mean, you know, the kid's cute, sure. Uh, we'll send him out on an audition." And I, I auditioned for a commercial for my first Transformers, um, which were just like the preschool version of Transformers toys. And I, I got the the commercial, I booked it, and they said, "Okay, yeah, that that's good, but probably a fluke. Let's let's send him out on something else." So I auditioned for a, a mini series, New York, uh, starring Lee Regg. Um, and I booked that, so my very first two auditions I booked right off the bat uh at that point it was it was a sealed deal so uh i uh, I started working pretty steadily from there and gosh i don't even remember where this was exactly in my age timeline, but uh uh it was it was a decent way in
0: yeah, and I was wondering how old were you when you landed the role on Quantum Leap? because you looked genuinely like five, six years old. I know they always cast older to play younger, but you didn't look older
10: and that's part of why i i worked out so well relatively speaking for for the work is i always looked much younger than my actual age let's see okay so that was uh that episode was 1990 so i would have been 8 years old Wow. Okay. Okay. And tell us how you got the gig at Quantum Leap. Uh, That's a good question. And honestly, I couldn't answer that at this point (laughs) anymore. I mean, there wouldn't be any special reasoning behind it. Uh, I auditioned for a lot of jobs constantly, and I booked a pretty decent amount. When I was young, I worked really steadily. So this would have been a case of agent got the the breakdown for it, submitted me, they were interested, I read for it, and then I... uh, they liked me enough to give me the job. So it's a pretty small role. So I can't imagine that I had a lot of auditions. Uh, there probably would have been the first audition and a single callback for director and producers. And then that would have been it. Uh, they wouldn't have required much more than that for this role.
0: Can you tell us a little bit more about your time on set? I know you got to do a scene with Charles Rocket and Melinda McGraw.
10: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember really enjoying this one. Uh, this would have been on the Universal lot if I remember correctly, and I, I'd worked there a lot and continued to work there a lot. And the cast of this was really great. I mean, the two of them were were lovely. I obviously most directly worked with Charles Rocket both in the Christmas Carol singing scene, uh, helping him with uh, with the uh, dialogue for this, or the or the lyrics for the song, and then sitting on his lap later on. And yeah, he was he was a joy to work with. I know my mother had been a fan of his from years earlier, so she was really excited to get to work with him and, and told me how cool he was. And I, I enjoyed the experience. He was a, a lovely person. You can tell a lot about people based on how they interact with kids on the set. There's definitely some who will keep their distance. Um, and in fairness, that's that's not unfair because I know kids on a, on a set are a <laughs> real problem sometimes. Uh, it's something I was always credited for was that I was one of the easier kids to work with. But uh, there's kind of this uh, this saying among the crew, uh, kids and dogs, you, you never want to work with them.
0: <laughs> it's funny, you because I was going to ask you <laughs> about this a little later in the interview, uh, because I've been reviewing your work. And it seems to me when you see child actors on screen, mm-hmm. they're either so focused on their lines that they're not looking at anything, or they seem distracted because they're looking for a cue from off screen. but. You seem to be so natural with not only dialogue, but improvising stuff. And you just seemed like a natural on screen in in just about everything you did. And was that an anomaly? for children actors at the time? I have to think it was.
10: Uh, that's my understanding of it, yeah, because I was always regularly called out for being quote, a natural, which was which was. I mean, I didn't have a lot of perspective on that at the time, but that was what I was always told. In fact, my first agent specifically uh, instructed us not to get me acting classes. So I didn't take any sorts of classes till I was a teenager just because I, I kind of held on to that perspective and people seemed happy with what I did. I don't know what it was. I can't say where that came from but frankly rewatching this episode which I did before the interview uh, a couple of days ago uh, I, I did not enjoy my performance in really? it that much. I felt like it was, yeah. Uh, I was watching my eyes when I was sitting on, uh, sitting on Charles Rocket's lap as they were going back and forth between him and, and whatever was going on. And it was like, I was really hamming that up. And <laughs> I was shocked by the performance.
0: That is funny because that's the one thing that struck me is the subtlety of your performance. A lot of child actors, again, go big. Because yeah. Because they're on screen and acting. You seem to be so naturalistic and kind of down to earth and just talking to this guy, you know what I mean? About your rocking horse. Well, thank you. It's what struck me about the performance. Now, if we can stay on quantum leap just a little bit, did you get to interact with Scott Bakula or Dean Stockwell on the set? Do you have any memories of working with them?
10: Yeah, uh, it, nothing incredibly specific, sadly. But I do remember having a conversation with Scott Bakula, uh, and he was also very nice to me. He and I didn't uh, work as directly together. Uh, so I don't think we were in the same shot together. But I definitely did chat with him because I was a fan of the show. I I mean, it was exciting for me because I, you know, I had seen it from the pilot episode on. I watched every episode of that series in its first run. Uh, so getting to be there, see that, see that the hand link in person, you know, mm. all these things that was, <laughs> that was really, really exciting for me. Uh, so I did get to have a, a, a conversation with him and I remember him being very kind. Uh, another example of that, uh, Dean, I don't think I got to talk to. He was, he was off in his own place. He was, I remember him being very, uh, if I remember correctly on the set, he was very professional. So. He was off preparing or doing other things related to the job. He was not necessarily hanging out the way other people might have been. I don't remember if that's exactly true or if that's just the way my brain's held onto that memory, but that's, that's what I picture. Ah, okay, yeah, and
0: uh, that's fine. That's not uncommon from what we've heard about Dean in other interviews because he usually only had to interact with Scott. Right. So a lot of the times it was rare if you were a guest star to really interact with him on set because there was no reason to. But everybody says he was just a stand up guy and a gentleman.
10: Yeah, I certainly have absolutely no negatives about him. Um, I think I might have briefly said hello to him and he was he was polite and nice. So but yeah, I I didn't get to actually spend time with him as I did the other actors.
0: I got you. Now, you had such an authentic look as an orphan boy. On quantum leap, I really I have to missing ask,
10: tooth and all, right?
0: Did central casting have you on speed dial for whenever they needed a, like a lovable Moppet? <laughs>
10: It's funny. It's not the only time I played the Tiny Tim character. I I ended up doing a, I did a Pillsbury commercial years later. uh, I'm not sure how many years later, maybe two. uh, But I did a Pillsbury commercial that was a Christmas commercial. And it was clearly, you know, a a Christmas carol was the theme of that commercial. And I was, I I think I even had literally the God bless us, everyone line in it. Uh, So, (laughs) yeah. So yeah, I've I've definitely I've definitely done that. Uh uh yeah, that seemed to be a thing. I know I played a, a a homeless child a few times, so I definitely fit into that well. I tended to play uh I think when I was a kid, I fell into a few stereotypes. There was that, there was the uh, uh young Italians, young young Jewish kids <laughs> and geniuses. It's just those those seemed to be my uh my things. But yeah, and that role was so funny too cuz I was missing that front tooth. And normally in any job when you're a kid and, and, and you lose a tooth, you get fitted for what's called a, a flipper, which is uh it's an insert that uh, it's a fake tooth that that inserts locks into place and, and looks like you're not missing a tooth. And literally, like when your tooth falls out, you're immediately on the phone scheduling for the dentist, which. Uh Dr. Smith was the dentist that I think all of us kids use at the time. Um, we'd all go to see Dr. Smith, immediately get fitted for it. Uh, sometimes you would get fitted for it ahead of time before the tooth would fall out. Once it was loose, you'd have an appointment. So they take a mold of the tooth and then you'd get that in there and you'd wear that on set. So this was a rare opportunity where I, I was filming without the flipper in.
0: Well, it did add to the authenticity. So it worked. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Well, I mean, speaking of those other roles, I mean, from Quantum Leap, you went on to appear in just a ton of TV shows and movies, including an episode of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, Mm -hmm. with fellow QL alum Terry Hatcher. So can you tell us a little bit about that?
10: Yeah, that that was a really fun experience for a lot of reasons. For one thing, there's an extra connection in that uh, Michael Watkins directed both the Quantum Leap episode and that Lois and Clark episode. And it's huh. it's possible that there may have been a factor there in me getting the Lois and Clark role because directors do like to request actors or they do obviously connect reconnect with people that they already worked with before and like them. So there may have been a trust factor there. But Yeah, that one, uh, I was a much larger role in that episode, so I have more specific memories of it. Uh, That was on, uh, I think that was the Warner Brothers lot that we did that one on. It should have been. Uh, And yeah, the entire cast of that, the entire crew of that was just absolutely fantastic to work with terry hatcher uh was lovely uh she was she was very kind and nice to chat with dean kane i spent a ton of time with in fact to the point where several times over the years after that i would run into him in situations and uh he he would remember me by name uh i ran into him on the the lot a few years later when they were still doing the show and then he called over terry and I, i chatted with both of them and then i ran into him when he was i think when he was filming uh whatever whatever the speed film was that he starred in I think it was probably speed three that went straight to DVD uh, I ran into him when he was filming that uh, not too far from my home at the time but yeah that was that was a really fun one we got to film in a lot of cool locations there was this gorgeous massive mansion with this huge expansive uh yard.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that that set
3: was
10: beautiful.
0: Yeah. That that house that you have yes.
10: in oh. right in the T's that's where
0: that that's where you first appeared on the show and Yep. I mean, what tell me tell me about working there. Where
10: was that? I'm trying to remember because I think I've seen that a few times since but gosh, it's been so long. I I know I've seen it in shows since then. Uh, I have no perspective on it because it's it's ridiculous. The amount of land that they have there was... Uh, I mean, it, it blows my mind. I'm sure. I'm sure in my head, picturing it now, it's even bigger <laughs> than it was in in real life. Right. Uh, right. But yeah, and yeah, we got to go around and inside the house a little bit too because they filmed uh, around it. And and yeah, it was just that was a mind blowing, mind blowing experience.
0: Yeah, if you have to do a location shoot, that's a place to do it. Right?
10: <laughs> yep. Yep. And then we had this whole uh, carnival scene that was on the back lot of Warner Brothers. They had this whole beautiful shutdown carnival that we filmed in that was crazy. Uh, and then, of course, we had the really cool uh, uh, magic set where the, the thrust of the episode, or at least the, you know, the ending tension occurs.
0: Right. I enjoyed your performance in that. And I saw that you got to work with Dean very physically because he had to pick you up and kidnap you, basically. Yes, yes. (laughs) So there's, I guess uh, there's a reason why he remembered you all those years later, right?
10: (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. I think we had a a, a whole harness for that and everything, too, to make sure it was really easy for him to pick me up. Yeah, I think they had something on me that uh, uh, there was a handhold. So he was able to reach around behind me, grab onto that handhold, and grab me so that it was a really natural, quick, easy, one-handed grab. And I think they might have even maybe pulled me up using some sort of external apparatus, too, to just make it look effortless on his part.
0: Yeah, well, it would stand to reason, right? Man of Steel. Yep. Well, I know a lot of people are geeks about Superman and genre stuff, but I have to admit to you that I am a huge Frasier fan. I'm a Frasier geek, <laughs> and you got to appear in three episodes of Cheers as Carla's son, Ludlow, like you said, playing, playing young Italians. But mm-hmm. in, in one of those episodes, you got to work extensively with both Kelsey Grammer and B.B. Newworth playing Frasier and Lilith. Yeah. God, what was that like?
10: Oh that was spectacular. Uh it's I mean that that's a career highlight for so many reasons. I mean to this day you tell anyone you did cheers and you get two reactions one is you get the awe because i mean everybody loves cheers you know it's still in reruns constantly uh but also you get that that confusion of wait that took place in a bar and you had to have right. been a kid at the time what <laughs> how does that make sense uh and yeah that was just it, it was yeah since i played carla's son which a little bit of a backstory on the character. She. In the second season of the show, I believe it was the second season, she had an affair with a psychologist, a very famous, uh, very intelligent psychologist, and then we would never hear anything about that again. It was a one episode deal, if I remember correctly. And then, you know, many years later, like six or six years later, uh, I show up, and it turns out I was the result of that. So I'm her uh, one of her eight children, uh, which she was famous for having. Right. Yeah one is one is in prison, the rest are live with her, and the my quirk was that yeah i'm a genius which she does not know how to deal with she can't she can't take me to 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 play baseball or you know w- w- all the, all the types of things that are the tortelli family standards of how you interact with a kid don't work on me they don't make sense to me they're not my interests and she doesn't get what i'm into she doesn't get this opera stuff Right. Uh, and so but immediately, obviously, Fraser and Lilith are deeply intrigued and uh, immediately take me under their wing, start taking me out to take to the opera, to museums, to everything they love. And I'm just I'm excited and into it. And Carla has no idea what to do with herself anymore because she's lost her kid to them. Mm-hmm. So that I mean, that's that's the backstory of of the character. As far as my experience on it goes, uh, it's hard to think of a more enjoyable job in my entire career. There's not a single bad person on that set from top to bottom. I mean, the director, James Burroughs, is a sitcom legend and an exceptional director because the thing is, he knows his cast and crew so exceptionally well that he knows how to trust them. And so every rehearsal, literally every rehearsal... Went exceptionally poorly because that <laughs> cast knows themselves. Yeah, that's the thing. The rehearsals are terrible because the cast knows themselves and one another, and so all they do is goof off instead of actually taking it seriously. Mm. There was one day where, uh, for an entire scene, BB just sang all of her dialogue. <sighs> yeah, yeah, it was like the, it, there were there were pranks being played all the time, practical jokes all the time. I there was a time that uh, I think uh, I think Woody Harrelson. Uh, locked Ted Danson out on the balcony uh, because it, w- the the green room there was upstairs behind the audience and big green room, you know, had a foosball table and all sorts of things, really nice. And there's a balcony there and the, the tours would come by. This was on the Paramount lot and, you know, the, the, the tours would come by and if one of the actors was up there, they'd, they'd, you know, they'd wave at them. And so one of the tours comes around, Ted Danson's out there uh, and Woody Harrelson sneaks up behind him pants him and then locks him out there. <laughs> and this, yeah, this was just the, the the norm there. No one considered this remotely unusual, and so it was scary at first for us because it was my first time doing the job. I was also a big fan of that show. I'd been watching it uh, as a kid, and uh, so it was really exciting. But we're looking at all of these goofballs not at doing their jobs and thinking, "Oh my god, this is going to be a disaster." But everything came together so well on shoot night. That's the moment where everyone goes, yeah, okay, now we do our jobs and they do them perfectly. And it's it's so uh, orchestral. It's so perfectly formed. And they're all such professional people. And yeah, I mean, James Burroughs, just to go back to him for a second, he and his uh, his script supervisor um, are an incredible team. And many years later, I was probably I don't know, I was probably about 25 at the time. Uh, I went to see a taping of a show uh, that he was directing at the time. And afterwards, you know, I had been out of this for a uh, while, you know, I, at that time I had, I just started to ramp down my my acting career um but i went up to the front of the the audience section at the very end and, and stood there and hoped to chat with him and he, he came over and i said hello and i reminded him that i had you know played Ludlow on cheers and he lit up and he said oh hold on a second uh, uh, come with me and so he walks me over to his script supervisor who's far enough away that she definitely didn't hear the conversation and he says to her uh do you see this, this gentleman here do you, Do you know who he is? And she looks at me for about three seconds and then says, why, yes, that was Carlos son Ludlow on Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's funny
0: because, I mean, you reprised your role as Ludlow in two more episodes but it was like a couple of seasons later right yeah this is going back when character continuity wasn't such a big thing on tv especially on sitcoms Mm -hmm. so was did you find that um a remarkable occurrence to, to get called back so many seasons later
10: oh absolutely that was wonderful especially again for a show that's really hard to justify having a kid on the show in any way but then, yeah, I ended up doing yeah two more episodes. The second one um, uh, was, if I remember correctly, yeah, the second one would have been when we were being babysat by uh, Sam and uh, uh, um, Rebecca, Kirstie oh Alley's character, Rebecca. Thank you. I remember the actress, not the role. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, which was uh, that was a fun one. Although it was it was a little bit less focused on me, which of course was fine. That was actually really fun to get to see me interacting with the whole horde, the whole family. That was a a, a strange. Environment and we actually had a we had a fun moment on that set uh, when during rehearsal uh, during one of the scenes I walk out of a a hallway to uh, to interact with uh, Rebecca and during the rehearsal I walk out and she's sitting on some guy's lap and so we continued the whole rehearsal but for some reason there's just some guy whose lap <laughs> she's sitting on and. Uh, Again, my age and my lack of perspective, I had no idea that that was John Travolta, whose lap she was sitting on. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. So it's those sorts of random things. Uh, And and of course, uh, Leah Remini was in that episode who was she was spectacular to work with. And of course, she's very much in the news lately. And I'm I'm very excited for her and and what she's doing and, and the efforts she's making. So that was fun. And then, yeah, the third episode was a much smaller role. And they actually had planned to have me in one more episode. I was on a veil for it. So they had me on hold, ready to do it, uh, which was uh, it would have been Leah Remini's character's wedding. Hmm. Uh, but it came down to they they couldn't come up with a... Uh, it it was going to be such a busy episode that they couldn't come up with a good enough use for me. And so it just seemed a waste. So I ended up not doing that. So I would have been in four, which I think that would have been in the last season of the show.
0: Shortly after your last role in Cheers, um, you appeared in a big film, a major motion picture by Robert Altman called Shortcuts. Yes. And in that you played Chad Weathers, who was the son of a character played by Francis McDormand and another character played by Peter Gallagher. Now, There were, I don't know, a million big names in this movie. Oh,
10: yes. And uh,
0: you also got to work with, you know, Tim Robbins. Mm -hmm. And uh, you also had something of a Quantum Leap reunion there, did you not?
10: Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah, this was uh, another funny little connection because, of course, this world is very, very tightly knit. Uh, Yeah. In that one, uh, my character's mother, Frances McDormand, has broken up with uh, Peter Gallagher's uh, character. Stormy Weathers was his name. He was a, a, a weather reporter. Uh, so, of course, he had an appropriate name. And so there it was a contentious uh, uh, divorce and he, he still wasn't fully accepting of the breakup and, and was pretty jealous. And so she was she was uh, seeing Tim Robbins character who was cheating on his wife with her. So, of course, this is all just deeply interconnected. So so she's having this relationship with this married cop played by Tim Robbins. And meanwhile, she's also cheating on him with some unknown factor. And there's this, this, this whole interaction we have in a, a restaurant, uh, Lily, Lily Tomlin's character is there, and she's trying to cover for the fact that she's going to be out of town and, and making up this fake uh, sister that she's got that she's going to go visit. And eventually, we actually see uh, the, the guy she's, she's connecting with. We, uh, we had a, a scene where he, he drives us uh, out of town for the weekend, and it's Charles Rocket who, of course, uh, played uh, our lead role in uh, A Little Miracle. Did Charles remember you? Uh, He did. Yes, yes. And uh, it was once again a lovely experience working with him. He was uh, he was just such an incredibly nice guy. And uh, unfortunately, as I'm sure you know, he uh, he we lost him some years back. And that was that was very disappointing because yeah, he, he was an exceptional person yeah, yeah. talented yeah. talented guy now,
0: deeply I, I just have to ask i mean at that point i know you're still young probably about eight or nine years old but you're in a room with francis mcdormand tim robbins lily tomlin mm-hmm. did it make any impression on you at that time the caliber of people that you were sharing the scene with was it somewhat surreal or was it just another day's work
10: It's always a a mixture because uh, when you're doing this, and especially for me having done it as long as I did and being in it, you do almost immediately see all these people as just coworkers. It very quickly shifts, but it's always it's interesting which ones will will kind of uh, uh, blow your mind like on that one. I didn't specifically know Francis McDormand or Tim Robbins that well before it. I, I knew that they were major people, but I didn't have as much direct experience with them outside of just working with them. So they were immediately just people i was working with uh and really enjoying they were spectacular lily tomlin i definitely knew of before that i knew from a lot of her her sketch comedy work uh so that was a little bit more of a a mind blow (laughs) strangely the one that was the most exciting to me and had me the most nervous and i didn't get to work with him directly but i asked robert if i could come to the set when he was filming and get to meet him and and i got a special opportunity was lyle lovett Uh, Lyle Lovett was in that film, which was the craziest thing, because, of course, he's not an actor. And and honestly, frankly, he's not even a very good actor. But his delivery in that and the player, because he's not an actor, is so much better. Uh, And so he works so well in those roles. But I, I was a huge fan of his music. So I got to go to the set. Uh, on an off day when he was filming at at the bakery. And I got to meet him and got him to sign a a copy of of one of his albums for me. And that was that was really mind blowing. But yeah, the rest of the the cast, I mean, that movie is a ridiculous powerhouse collection, like all of Robert Ullman's films. It's just actor after actor after actor. And they beg to be in his movies, he he pays everyone at the same level. Uh, It doesn't matter who you are. And people will still beg to be in his films, or or did.
0: Yeah, well, he was one of the last great auteurs, and I can't say that I was a fan of every one of his movies. I found them plotting sometimes. no oh, sure. It'd probably been a good 15 years since I saw Shortcuts, and I always found that one very intriguing. And I just want to thank you, because in revisiting it to watch your role, I, I realized what what an incredibly intricate and complex movie it is. There, It's funny, and it's tragic, and Tim Robbins is a lunatic, and... It was a really nice experience to rewatch it. One thing I noticed about your scenes specifically is that you were always – you always had some kind of on-screen business, and you were very
10: chatty. Was that (laughs) scripted? Did Altman ask you to improvise that? How did that go down? Working with him is fascinating because his entire method was to keep everyone on their toes and – and natural. So for me, for instance, specifically, yes, literally all of my dialogue was improvised or ad-libbed to the point where he actually had requested of my mother that I not be allowed to read the script. He did not want me to be influenced by what had been pre-written. He wanted to make sure that every day on the set, I was just myself. Uh, my my audition with him was merely a conversation. This was one of the more unusual uh, auditions I ever had, uh, we met at his his offices, and it was it was a group of kids that were brought into the room together. There was probably five or six of us lined up in a in a row and he He just kind of walked down the line and chatted with each of us asked us a, a few questions about ourselves and Earlier that day, uh, my mother had taken me to uh, an art gallery where they were they were displaying some uh, some trompe l'oeil art, which is an art style that it, it's it's a flat painting, but it's so exceptionally detailed and perspective is so well used that it kind of tricks your brain into seeing it as a three dimensional object, uh, and so. I brought that up to him, and I, I, think, I, I, I think I said to him uh, you know, that it's, it's trompe le said which is French. <laughs> and he laughed and said, I know, I have a home in France. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and,
10: yeah, and, and so we, he and I ended up chatting for several minutes, kind of awkwardly, while these other kids are just standing around next to us. Uh, and then he finally finishes with me and chats with the other ones. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think I got the job the same day. There was no other audition. There was nothing else at that point. All he cared about is, is this a person I can communicate with and have a rapport with? And that's all he ever cared about is is just people he could talk to and who you trust to carry on a conversation. And so our rehearsals were were very interesting in that it was kind of we were rehearsing the gist of the scene, but it was never, ever done the same way twice. And that wasn't expected. And the filming process, yeah, I, I knew what was expected of me. I knew we had to get from point A to point B to point C, but how we got there was up to the whims of the people doing it. And he always lived to to screw with his actors to get natural reactions out of them. Years later, after after he passed away, I got to go to his, uh, his LA memorial service. And the kinds of stories that actors were telling on stage are the way that he would just I, you know they, they knew what they were doing, and then, as the camera would roll, he'd walk on the stage and give them some sort of instruction that would completely destroy all of their expectations and then just walk off and call action. And, and suddenly they're, they're yeah, <laughs> they're dealing with the aftermath of it. Or or he would, he would do things like he would have actors who had no idea that they were being screwed with. I mean, uh, I think uh, it was Mr. T and the women, oh, I'm sorry, not Mr. T, <laughs> Dr. T and the women, uh, that uh, he had a main a main scene with two of the main characters. There was a lot of pre-written dialogue. And there was another actress who was just supposed to be sitting in the background not doing anything. It was her first day on the set, um, and major role, but in this scene, all she is is background. And as they called rolling, he walked up to her and said, when I call action, I want you to start talking and never let them get a word out. Oh, God. And yeah, there's a whole scripted scene that he's just decided in that moment, you know what, we don't need this to work. We need something to completely disrupt it. And that was his style. And And, and Shortcuts was a three hour and 19 minute movie that was just a non-stop collection of all the things that he randomly made happen and then figured out how to stitch together. It was all based off of a script that he and, and Frank Barheight wrote together. Um it was so it it came out of something, you know, something real. There was a, a plan there. It was based off of a series of, of short stories um, off the top of my head i 'm suddenly forgetting the name of the, uh, the, the the author who wrote the stories but uh, they yeah, they wanted to stitch all of those together and so they wrote the script uh, and there was absolutely a real physical script. but from then on, it was a case of what do we do with these people and how do we make them Interesting in every possible way, and so, so most of what was filmed was not remotely scripted. All of the actors were relied on to improvise and ad lib, and and respected to do so. And if I remember correctly, uh, when when Robert uh, finished his first edit of the film and realized he needed to bring in outside help editing it, uh, he had brought the length of the movie down to eighteen hours. Oh God! <laughs> and so so he ended up <laughs> he ended up needing help and eventually got down to the three hours and uh three hours and nine minutes that's what it was the three hours and nine minutes that that hit the theater i think i I feel like there might have even been an intermission when we saw it in the theater, I'm, I'm not hundred percent sure, but in those days, it was a little bit more unusual to have three hour films uh, I think after that we ended up with a a bunch more things like casino and heat and stuff like that, but at that time that was that was really unusual but I think it paid off.
0: Yeah, it was it was a very interesting movie. At times funny, at times tragic, at times just manic. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 really an interesting watch. And to be able to work with such an acclaimed director, mm. I'm sure that, that that was a treat. But shortly after that you got to work on an acclaimed drama, the nineties teen drama Freaks and Geeks, (laughs) which, again, powerhouse names. It helped launch the careers of people like Seth Rogen and James Franco
10: and Linda Cardellini. And Mm -hmm. the director was Judd Apatow, right? Yes. Yes. The director was Judd Apatow. uh, And the creator, oh, my God, the creator was, was Paul Feig. Marvel Paul Feig? Yes, yeah, he created the show and then, and Judd Apatow was the executive producer, uh, yeah, uh, director of the, the, uh, although actually I'm sorry, the director of the first episode, uh, was Jake Kazdan, so uh, son of, of Lawrence Kazdan, if I'm remembering that my uh my lineage correctly. Um so also uh
0: like Lawrence Kazdan The Empire Strikes Back Lawrence Kazdan?
10: Yes, and un- unless uh, unless I'm I'm connecting threads wrong, but I remember his father was uh <laughs> was <laughs> well known and I'm pretty sure that's the only other uh known Kazdan. So uh yeah, sometimes my uh my brain loses those threads. Uh but yeah uh, uh so he, amazing director, amazing executive producer, amazing writer and creator of the show. Uh, and then the cast was ridiculous. And so I was on the, the geek side of that equation, which uh, most of the geeks, I'd say, well, no, actually, the geeks have done very well for themselves, too, because you've got uh, John Francis Daly, who played the lead role, who he wrote the latest Spider-Man film. Uh, he's turned into quite an acclaimed uh, film writer. Uh, and he starred in Bones for many seasons, uh, and then you've got Martin Starr, who it took him a little bit longer to finally uh, get what he deserved out of the industry. But you know, he's of course on Silicon Valley. Um, he was on the fantastic Party Down, and he's had a, a bunch of uh, of good roles. So it's exciting to see him do well.
0: And he was also in in Spider Man Homecoming. He had a role. Too. That's right.
10: Yes, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He was the yeah. He was the the coach of the uh, the debate team. So friends, you're yeah. Right.
0: Connections that go back.
10: Yeah, yeah and uh, my 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 friend on that, Sam Levine. I'd say he's probably the one who, who's been passed over the most, sadly. And I think he's one of the most ridiculously talented people. He he's an amazing stand up comedian. He was the youngest ever member of the New York Friars Club, and he does. Uh, he's on uh, Kevin Pollock's chat show. He's a he's a, his kind of sidekick on that. And uh, he was an inglorious bastard. So he's he hasn't done uh, badly for himself, but I'd say he has not gotten quite the level of success that I would have loved to have seen for him because he's a ridiculous talent. And then everyone on the freak side has gone on to ridiculous levels of success. I mean, they're they're basically running Hollywood. So, yeah, amazing experience, amazing opportunity. Uh, and and that was a weird one, because actually uh, how I got that job Uh, Would have been semi more normal. I I, I read for originally I read for Neil, uh, Sam Levine's role, um, and I I didn't get that, which, of course, that's that's typical. But then they eventually brought me back to to read for a a smaller character, the role of Harris. Now, Harris, as you may recall, throughout the show, was the incredibly deadpan, uh, emotionless uh, senior senior geek who they they all looked up to, uh, played by my friend uh, Stephanie Shepard. And what had happened was, I read for that role. They loved me. It was it it was great. I, I had callbacks. It was it, it felt like a sure thing. And then nothing ever happened. And then I got a call one night from my agent saying, "Hey, uh, we need you uh, on a veil for tomorrow morning. They're filming uh, the episode of Freaks and Geeks. They're filming the pilot, and they they loved you, but you're they you're actually their second choice for the role. But the actor that they found, they found in in Vancouver." And they don't have his his work visa yet and 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 so they may not be able to work with him in the morning if it doesn't come in in time they're waiting for it to come through and so what they they need is they need you on set in in wardrobe makeup hair, everything ready and if by i don 't remember maybe it was nine a m ten a m if by that time that hasn't come through you're in wow and and that was that was crazy I'd never done anything quite like that before, and it's that weird mix mixed moment of Yay, I'm your second choice. <laughs>
9: but then again, <laughs> out of
10: all, all of the actors who read for the role, second's pretty good. So yes, yeah, so I, I went in uh, and it, it filmed pretty close to my home. It was in, at, at my home at the time. It was in New Hall because New uh, Hall, California, it's all part of Santa Clarita. And Santa Clarita has a lot of range to it in modernity. So some of the neighborhoods are quite old, which look perfect for the 80s of, the 80s, uh, of that show. So a lot was filmed out there. Uh And so, yeah, I was out there in this this little neighborhood, getting ready, and literally, we're all just standing around watching the clock tick away, waiting for this threshold and finally, the time hits, and they've got nothing. And it's like, all right, you tag in and so I, I filmed uh that was the fight scene that we had in that episode with uh an old friend of mine, uh Chauncey Leopardi, played the the bully uh allen in that sh- in that show, and so yeah i'm I'm suddenly in in this this big fight scene. And they still loved uh, the other actor and wanted to use him. It's just that they had been held back by this. So what they did is they split the role in half. And so later on in the filming of that pilot, we filmed the the prior scene where where Harris was supposed to be introduced and instead introduced both of us. Colin was my character and Harris was his, introduced both characters side by side, and then, you know, just had to make the plot make sense so that I'm the one who shows up for that later scene. I ended up doing two other episodes of the show, um, which were both fun and a little bit different from that. And yeah, I got to be a part of television history, arguably the best canceled show of all time.
0: So would you say that you were maybe one of the few or the only actors to have a role invented for him on the spot in a, a major television <laughs> series?
10: Uh, it, it kind of feels like that. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's happened in weird ways like that before. But yeah, that was, defi- it was definitely a last minute creation. Uh, yeah, it's, that's happened in weird ways. Probably not for me. But I mean, if we go back to Cheers, Cliff Clavin's character was created by him in the audition room. Because he, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the character of Cliff Claven, I should say, John Ratzenberg's character, Cliff Claven, he had read for Norm, and when he was leaving the the audition room, famously, he had, he he turned around and said to them, "By the way, do you have the guy with keys on his belt?" And and they're like, well, "What do you mean?" It's like there's always there's always that guy. He's 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 so important that he's got to have keys dangling off of his belt. Uh, it's like, you know, it, it, that's always an interesting barfly character that you should consider. And they loved him um, and they wrote that character specifically for him. Uh, so, yeah, the, those sorts of oddities happen in all of these things where where the person you uh, you didn't expect or that character that you love came out of the strangest origins. So you're in good company. Uh, I like to think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell us, what do you what are you doing these days?
10: uh well uh the the last uh the last paid job I had was uh was entourage back in two thousand and five at that point i uh I had kids who I needed to to focus on uh more stable work because sadly the the acting gig is not reliable for for most of us and that was a difficult time for me because I was transitioning into Adult work and that transition age kills a lot of actors. I mean, it just destroys their careers, uh, and a, a select few make that successfully. And I might have, but yeah, as I said, I needed to focus on taking care of them. So I, I, I transitioned to other work, and I, I work full time in in IT support these days. Uh, I played a lot of nerds, and, and I became one. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> so that's what that's what pays my bills on a regular basis, which is good. But I, I do a lot of more hobby acting now. I uh, I was with a, a theater company for for a few years which was, uh, I hadn't done theater since I was very young. So it was interesting because most people kind of start with theater and work their way to screen. And I worked my way backwards, which is a really unusual transition to make, uh, but really fun and, and rewarding. And now a huge focus for me is improv. I started doing improv a few years ago. Ironically, especially given our conversation earlier about shortcuts and how that entire film was improvised, I spent years convinced that I couldn't do improv. Huh. Uh, it was just this this mental block that oh, that's not a skill I have or could possibly have, and so I kind of I avoided it. And then a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine talked to me into taking some classes at uh, IO West in in Los Angeles and Hollywood, and I took the classes and I really enjoyed it, and I, I wasn't as terrible as I expected to be and uh eventually I, I co-founded uh my current uh team the feel good not bad death laser and uh
3: what we, <laughs> yes <laughs>
10: That is our name, the feel-good, not-bad death laser. Uh, yeah, it's it's a fantastic team made up of, uh, we've got 11 amazing members. In fact, one of our team, you know, again, all these security connections, one of our team members uh, works with Sam Levine on the Kevin Pollock uh, chat show. So, again, everybody's somehow connected to someone else. Uh, and yeah, so a few of us—my uh, friends uh, Josh Spence and David Coe—and I created this team together, and then started bringing on ridiculously talented people. And so we've been doing this for uh, oh, about two years now, and and we've been really successful. We've done uh, 131 shows in two years, which is which is actually pretty crazy. Um, most people don't get anywhere near that. And we had a really good uh, – we had a regular run at iOS West for, uh, for quite a while. And, and sadly, that theater just very suddenly closed uh, last month, leaving the whole community uh, uh, very very depressed and, and in shock. But we're, we're all finding new homes again now, and some new theaters are going to open up and fill in those those gaps. And it's going to be fun again.
0: Is there someplace that our listeners can find that online if they want to go see you?
10: Yeah, you can go to thedeathlaser.com we 've also got the feelgood not bad but the death is a quicker address a little more succinct right yes exactly or at the death laser on uh, on Twitter and Facebook and so we keep a uh, we have events always up we have a Google Calendar on our website that tracks all of our, our shows and then we're going to be uh, we're gonna be performing at the OC improv festival in Orange County on uh, April 7th uh, that's a I think it's a three-day uh, festival of improv and we actually uh, we get to close out the entire show that Saturday night so in the the 10 p.m. Off. We're, we're teamed with some ridiculously uh, talented other teams. And, uh, and I think we're going up last. So we're actually going to be closing out that festival, which is going to be really exciting. So, so check that out.
0: Well, that's great. So everybody, please go to the dot If you live in LA or in the California area and go see it. Uh, now getting back, if we can just to circle back to quantum leap a little bit. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us about your time on the show? Or any message that you have for the leapers listening out there?
10: I just say that being a part of something so special, I I mean, uh, being brought on this podcast reminded me to rewatch my own episode, which when I watched it reminded me of just how much joy I got out of that show when I watched it originally. And I was a kid at the time. Uh, and, and now I realize I really need to go back through the entire series. It was such an exceptional level of quality for the time. I mean, there's so much cheese that happened in the, in the 80s to 90s in drama. And of course, the show had those moments, but it had so much heart. It had such amazing chemistry between, between Dean and, and Scott. And that's rare. So I think for people who are hardcore fans of this show, there's a darn good reason that you are, and i i, I wouldn 't let go of that and i hope uh I hope the uh, the the news of a potential movie is is true and comes through. Uh, I hope we have it continue in other forms. I hope the uh, the sad eventual reboot that's guaranteed of everything they loved uh, manages to mm-hmm. hold up to it whenever that happens. But uh, yeah, just, just keep on with it. Uh, I'm here with you. I'm a fan too.
0: Well, that's terrific to hear, Jared. And thank you so much for being here with us on the Quantum Leap podcast. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. So, Suzanne, was I lying? Was he not terrific?
1: That was awesome.
0: Right? I told you. I mean, so interesting. (laughs) So funny. Just a real down-to-earth guy. Jarrett, thank you so much. We really love talking to you. Um, If you want to come on to A Little Miracle Phase 4, maybe Albie will have you hosted. I don't know. Just, you know, I have your phone number (laughs) now, so nobody's safe. (laughs) Anyway, I think that... uh, Suzanne, do you think this wraps up our part of the show? Yeah, I mean, w- w- this is not—you know—there's much more to come. I mean, I, this is a giant Christmas mess. It's there's singing, there's dancing. It, the, the sleigh goes off off the path, but it's so much fun. <laughs> and uh, especially, uh, there's there's something about hippopotamuses and Christmas and just radio dramas going on. So everybody, hang around, <laughs> listen to that. And uh, we just want to wish you the merriest of Christmases. And uh, Suzanne tell the people
1: should we end it with a little bit of our singing and dancing too
0: oh put me on the spot what are we gonna sing
1: (laughs) I'm dreaming of of a white
0: white
2: Christmas Christmas
0: (laughs) with every Christmas card I like the way you think because if it's one thing I like more than talking on mic it's singing badly on mic with
3: every
8: Christmas card I write
0: take it away
8: who travels through time, his holographic pal is heard but never seen. Well, now in a holiday surprise, Paula McClure reveals that the show's own cardinal rule is about to be broken. In NBC's Quantum Leap, Scott Bakula is a scientist trapped in time travel. Each week, he leaps into another person's life with guidance from his holographic sidekick, Albert, played by Dean Stockwell. Sam must correct history before leaping on. Leap may be based on a science fiction gimmick, but all of the stories are from the heart. For the holidays, the show will borrow a page from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Sam leaps into a valet's life to change the heartless ways of his scrooge-like boss. Marking. Uh,
5: Mr. Blake is unavailable right
8: now. Mr. Blake is never available. Mr. Blake hasn't been available for the last 18 months. He returns all my mail, and I am not going to let him tear down the 4th Street Mission. I'm sure that he has no intention of demolishing the mission.
5: We Scrooge him basically. We take him back to his old neighborhood. We 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 show him his pictures from his family and all that, and try and try and uh, soften this guy up.
8: To become the ghost of Christmas Future, the normally invisible Albert will be seen by this Scrooge, a callous land developer played by Charles Rocket. I just saw you. How
5: could I, I, he actually saw he, you? Did he called me a jerk. He didn't listen though. We use this um, aberration or anomaly, whatever it is, to our advantage at the the end of the show, so that we enable him to see me again, and I convince him that I'm a ghost and scare him into changing his ways.
8: Now in its third season, Quantum Leap has a loyal following, including fan clubs with their own newsletters.
6: I'm so glad you came by, Hayden, but uh, you guys, I'm just not feeling that great, so I think I'm going to go off to bed, if that's okay. I hope that's not too rude.
4: Oh, it's all right, Albie. We understand. Um, yeah, um, we'll keep the party going and try not to be too loud.
6: Oh, thank you. Merry Christmas.
4: Merry Christmas Merry to you too. Hi, Albie. So, um, so Heather, uh, what are uh, your um, thoughts on the episode, having seen this a second time now?
11: Well, I think it's one of the better episodes, um, and I like the fact that Al is. In completely different attire than we usually see him in, he's in this great big floral shirt, and he looks like he <laughs> belongs on the beach instead of in the imaging chamber.
4: Well, <laughs> oh, I'd love to be on the beach. I miss being on the beach at Christmas time.
11: I've never been on the beach at Christmas time.
4: <laughs> uh, you've got to come visit me in Australia. I keep telling you that. Maybe we can get a decent deal on um, you know house planes or something. <laughs> 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 That'd be great,
11: yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> I need my no, own um, artist
11: that I need yeah,
4: no, I really enjoy the episode as well. It's definitely something that I pull out every Christmas. uh, it's just such a lot of fun, and seeing Al as the ghost of Christmas future is just hilarious, and one green and one, uh, green
11: turn, one red, ear.
4: <laughs> yeah, pretty much, and um, yeah, his complexion is pretty much exactly the same as it is any other time,
11: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Alwyn Green.
4: Okay, well, um, yep, yeah, it's a great episode, uh, always a lot of fun to watch. I love how they kind of do the Ghost of Christmas Past, Ghost of Christmas Present, and Ghost of Christmas Future through it as well, just like uh, Dickens. Um, who do you think represents, obviously Al represents the Ghost of Christmas Future, but who do you think represents the, the past and the present ghosts?
11: Um, I think the Ghost of Christmas Present is Sam. Um, because he's trying to like usher Blake through the episode and show him, you know where his present course is taking him. um yeah. the ghost of Christmas past, I feel is the old friend that Blake runs into who is selling the chestnuts, and oh, that's cool. Um, then tells him that his friend passed away and everything. Cause at that particular scene, he starts to kind of soften a little bit. Cause he remembers, Oh, I was one of these street urchins once, you know, I was poor once I, you know, lived out in the cold once. And yep. you know, he's right there at the mission and he's seeing all these kids that don't have a home and he's remembering the way that he grew up. And for an instant, you see this little bit of shame that bubbles up inside of him, but then his pride takes over and he pushes it away. And, so, yeah, I feel that that, that that particular moment and that particular person is the ghost of Christmas past because it is his past confronting him. So
4: That's really good. Completely different to what I had as well. I actually thought that Sam was the ghost of Christmas past because he's the <laughs> one that found the photographs and he's also the one that drove Blake to um, his old neighborhood and made it possible for him to see his old friend and all that. Uh and I actually saw Captain Downey as the ghost of Christmas present because uh she was kind of representing everything that Blake wanted at that point in time.
11: That's a very interesting theory. I almost like that better.
4: Yeah. But uh, yours is great as well. Uh maybe um Albie can be the, the <laughs> maybe Alby can be the deciding vote. <laughs>
11: yeah, there you go. He can choose which one he likes best and stick it in.
4: <laughs> yeah, awesome.
11: I like how the episode opens where we see Sam as the servant that he has leapt into, and he's in an awkward situation. He's having to dress this grown man who we see (laughs) only from the legs up, and it's shown in a way that makes us, the audience, believe that he's nude. And this man is forcing Sam to put the talcum powder in his shorts, and the man steps into them, and then Sam begins shifting the pants up and lowers his head, saying... Oh boy. Oh boy is right. This loser can't even flipping dress himself, really?
4: <laughs> I don't know. If you if you were rich, would you want someone else dressing you? That's the thing. I, no. I don't think I would. Yeah.
11: <laughs> First of all, they'd go blind.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well you can never you can never stare directly at the sun, can you?
11: No. <laughs> and plus this I mean this this character that that Sam is working for Blake. He's, he's very obnoxious and ironically for the episode, or perhaps purposely, he's an Ebenezer Scrooge type character that obviously enjoys making other people grovel all over him. He's one of the richest men in the country at the time. And so it's, it's fitting that together Sam and Al have to melt his icy heart.
4: Yeah. Looking at the, the opening, the opening teaser, to the episode you'd never guess that it's going to be the christmas one would you
11: no no because it looks like you know it's going to be this everyday thing and and then we jump in and there's christmas music and there's lights and it's like oh
4: (laughs) surprise do you think do you think maybe if it was done today they'd try and make it seem somewhat more christmassy in the in the teaser just to try and pull all those people in
11: i don't think so no i i think I think the way that culture is today, um, you know, the Christmassy things are, it feels like they're being downgraded from being so Christmassy. Maybe that's just me. Um, So I think think that today the episode would have fit in just fine for what television is doing today. Certain shows, anyhow. Okay. Um, I like how at the end of the episode where right before Sam and Al do their dickens thing they're in the fourth street mission and they're having cake and everybody's singing and everybody's happy and you glimpse the softness in blake for a few minutes and you think oh oh we did it and even al is looking at ziggy and going we did it sam we can leap we can go home we succeeded he's broken and you know he's singing christmas carols with people and enjoying himself and Then all of a sudden, these kids walk in, and you would think, oh, this would be the perfect opportunity. You know, these kids are coming in, and they're going to show him just how miserable everything is, and they're the perfect reason for why the Fourth Street mission should stay open. And he has the complete opposite reaction. He gets really mad, and he storms out of the place, and he's telling Captain Downey, You did this deliberately. You're trying to make me melt. And, you know, he runs out of the place. And then the.
4: Did you realize that the reason for that? Because um, they're the same kids that uh, he saw in the in the the street earlier, and they're the ones that uh, tried to remind him of his past.
11: I did. I did notice that that the one little boy yeah. with the flat cap that came in. Yeah. I recognized him. I was like, "Uh huh. I see what you're doing there."
4: <laughs> That's it. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say?
11: Um, yes Um, I also like the fact how at the end of the episode Al is able to use the fact, the annoying fact that even though Blake could see him and hear him in the beginning of the episode he's able to use it to his advantage and this is when he disguises himself as the ghost of Christmas future Um, which I want to make a note this character gets ripped apart a lot of the time for being over the top but (laughs) Dean Stockwell did that deliberately. He meant to play him over the top. And you can tell that Dean, as Al, is enjoying himself completely. So personally, I don't think there's any problem with his performance being over the top and ridiculous. It was meant to be that way.
4: Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, if he, if he just pretended to be like a normal person, then he wouldn't believe he's a ghost, would he?
11: Exactly. And the effect works because Blake is like so scared he's wetting himself the entire time right and with the help of ziggy al as this over the top ghost of christmas future is able to show blake his bleak future of loneliness bankruptcy and failure and al is able to eventually show blake that not only will he lose everything if he continues on his present path of greed and unbridled lust for power but he'll also be led by his own misery and destructive nature to commit suicide. And for a dramatic flavor, Al drives the horrible point home by showing Blake his own grave. And this cold and horrible truth of his heartless attitude causes Blake to finally break. And he melts into a pool of tears. And that is where we come to the marvelous end of the episode where He realizes that he's a horrible person and he's able to change. And we see the star in the sky and Sam thinks that Al did it. And then we find out that Al didn't do it and that it was a genuine miracle. And I think that's one of the best endings for a Christmas episode for a TV show that anybody could have ever come up with. So, well done. (laughs) Um Absolutely.
4: yeah, uh, just in general, the whole A Christmas Carol story—it's pretty much the perfect story, isn't it? It's the perfect yes. story about how anyone has the has the chance of redemption. Anyone has the opportunity to try and make something better of themselves. Yeah, and uh, there's a reason. Art. Yeah, and there's a reason why every single TV show in the world, pretty much, or every single genre in the world, has. A a Christmas carol story for it It's because it just is transcendent It can apply to
10: anything and anyone
11: Yeah, and it's timeless I mean, Charles Dickens was way ahead of his time And it's proven itself with that story Because it's come all of these how many centuries later And we're still using it today
4: Yeah, which reminds me We should go and see The Man Who Invented Christmas Which is the movie about Charles Dickens Which is out at the moment
11: Oh, that sounds good. I hadn't heard about that.
4: Yeah, it looks good.
11: Tell me a little yeah. bit about it.
4: I actually don't, <laughs> don't know that much about it. I've only seen the trailer once. Um, but <laughs> All right, I'll at
11: the trailer later.
4: <laughs> yeah, but I remember it looked good.
3: Okay.
4: <laughs> yeah. While we're on the subject, too, uh, it's a bit of a sad topic, but uh, depression is a very big issue during the holiday season as well. Um I mean, it's a horrible issue at any point in time, really, but especially in the holidays, because seeing everyone so happy and seeing people with things that you don't have and all that, it can really build up. Um, Just know that um, you're not alone. It is very, um, and it's not a sign of weakness if you're feeling depressed. It just means that you've been strong for far too long. It's nothing to be ashamed of as well. There really shouldn't be any stigma to any mental illness. It's caused by um, chemical imbalances in the brain. If you are feeling like you're worthless and feeling like you do need, um, like nothing's ever going to get better and that uh, you're not able to get any enjoyment in anything, please do go and see your doctor they can um, give you some amazing, tender-loving medication to help get those serotonin levels back in um, balance. Things will get better. And please don't do anything stupid uh, because there is always going to be someone who will miss you if you weren't here.
11: Yeah, exactly. And I would like to add to that by saying that if there's anybody who is proof that it does get better, it's me. A year ago, my life was not working out and I thought that it never, ever would until one day I decided that I was going to take, take steps to make it work. And I took those steps and my life has changed dramatically in the last three months. My life is nowhere near perfect yet, but it's getting there. And I have hope for the first time in my life and I'm 30. So, you know, it may take a while, but you will eventually get there. Just keep hanging in there and know that there are people out there who love you, who, as you said, would miss you if you weren't here. And just keep fighting. It's worth it.
4: That's it. Yeah, and I, I'm also one of the success stories. Um, I got post-operative depression after I had some cancer cut out of me. Um, a really horrible experience. Um, oh. And it doesn't help healing when you're feeling depressed either. Um, nope. Yeah, definitely feeling like nothing was going to get better. And um, also not knowing if you were healthy or not. Just waiting for the results don't see it as a sign of weakness, all right if um I mean <laughs> when you go through a massive trauma it, it's obvious that you're not going to feel the best all right yeah. um, please do go and see your doctor um they might just they might think that therapy is the right way to go, they might think medication is the right way to go, but uh, do what needs to be done to try and make things better. um It's all right to not to not be able to do this on your own and talk to yeah. someone as well
11: hmm yeah, sometimes we need to be able to reach out to other people. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us. It just means that it's not something that we can handle by ourselves. That's all Absolutely. it means. So don't be afraid yeah. to get yeah.
4: All right, well, let's get off that horrible topic.
11: <laughs> yes, please. Let's get this party started. <laughs>
4: Thanks, and like any good invisible hologram, we see you when you're quantum deeping. The Quantum Leap comics, published by Innovation Comics, are a fun way that the Quantum Leap universe has been expanded. This is the perfect opportunity to look back on issue number three. The cover art, featuring an annoyed-looking Sam Beckett atop Santa Claus's chair, with a young boy on his lap and a line of impatient screaming kids nearby, is absolutely gorgeous. I especially love Al next to Santa's chair. Being surrounded by a white glow, making him look angelic. See Winston Taylor really outdid himself on this cover, being able to get so much expression into one picture. If the cover art didn't give it away, the first of the two stories in this issue is entitled He Knows If You've Been Bad or Good. And see Sam leap into the aura of the Davenport Mall Santa a few days before Christmas in 1963. If you haven't read the comics before, you might be a bit surprised at the dramatic change in style between the cover and the first page of the main story. The artwork for the main story is nowhere near as lifelike as that of the cover. Not surprising since they were drawn by different people, and the artwork for the main story gives a cartoony vibe. This isn't a bad thing though, one would expect something a bit more childish for a Christmas special. Cells which show people from a distance do not tend to have much detail in the faces, but it is to the credit of the illustrator, Andy Price, that a great deal of expression can still be seen in them. Close-up shots are far more detailed, and while he got Scott Bakula's facial features just right, it is a shame that he didn't quite get Dean Stockwell's. But that is more than made up for with the extremely cute Christmas-themed drawings on the borders of each page. My particular favourite are the stockings in the top and bottom left corners of page 6, one for each member of the Project Quantum Leap crew, and filled with gifts very fitting for that character. It is a shame that the three on the top of the page were partially cut off, but if you want to see them complete, they were reprinted in issue 6 at the request of a reader. The playboy and cigars in Al's stocking are almost enough to make up for Donna being given a book entitled Absent Husbands and Sam's stocking being left heartbreakingly empty. The story itself is very simple and follows the usual formula for a Christmas special. Sam's host, Nick, a man that Al and Ziggy are unable to get much information about, is a good friend of Mark, the assistant manager of the mall. Nick is also a frequent babysitter of his two children, Jesse and Shannon. Their mother died two years earlier and has resulted in Shannon becoming a cynical and depressed teenager. Mark has been working extremely long hours every day and is such a generous person that he will always help out anyone who needs it. Unfortunately, this means he doesn't get to see his children much, and this perceived neglect only adds to Shannon's depression and cynicism. Sam tries to defend Mark, saying that each little thing that he does to help someone is a miracle to them. Shannon doesn't believe in miracles, so Al thinks that Sam's mission is to restore Shannon's Christmas spirit. Meanwhile, a group of little people keep trying to get Sam's attention, wanting his help for the big night. For some reason, they can see Al. The mission proves difficult for Sam, making him think that he needs a miracle himself. To make matters worse, Amos, Mark's superior, has been embezzling money from the store and has framed Mark for it. Mark is arrested. Al can't believe that Ziggy missed this event, but Ziggy has been preoccupied with trying to find out information about Nick. With their father locked up just three days before Christmas, all hope of restoring any Christmas spirit seems lost. But when word gets out about his arrest, all of the people that Mark has recently helped pitch in to post his bail. Mr Davenport, the owner of the store, also comes to the police station. Knowing Mark's character, he does not believe that Mark stole from him, so drops the charges and swiftly fires Amos. Shannon is overjoyed, and seeing this as all the little miracles adding up to one big miracle, now has her Christmas spirit restored. With Sam's mission complete, he is again approached by the little people, who are carrying a huge sack of toys and pointing to their watch. Realising that he's leapt into the real Santa Claus, Sam leaps. I have mixed feelings about this episode. I've only talked about the first story in issue three, because A, it's the Christmas-themed story, and B, the second story is a hot mess. More concerned with trying to tack in science fiction elements than trying to have a story that fits in the lore of Quantum Leap. I'll save that discussion for another time, though. As for the quantum leap law in the first story, it's hit and miss. It is nice that they tried to stick to most of the rules established in the quantum leap canon, such as having small children able to see Al, and as much as I'm sure Christopher D. Philippus will hate it, the formula of anything supernatural being alluded to, proving to be true for the twist at the end, is followed. However, it is established in the illustration of the mirror shot that Sam's host Nick has a full beard. So it doesn't make sense that Sam would be wearing a fake beard for most of the story. Actually, maybe it does. If the small children can see Al, then they should be able to see Sam too. And if so, they'll think that Santa doesn't have a beard unless Sam wears a fake one. So maybe Sam is wearing the fake beard for their benefit. But then, why does the cover have Sam without a fake beard? And why does the first page of the story show Sam leaping in to a man wearing a fake beard when that man doesn't need it? I also have issues with how Ziggy seems completely unable to predict anything that's going to happen despite having all the information in front of her. However, just for the sake of having another heartwarming Quantum Leap Christmas story... This comic is well worth checking out if you haven't done so already, or pulling out of storage to enjoy at least once over this silly season.
9: Hi, folks. Allison here, reading an email from George Broderick, the editor of Quantum Leap comic number three, who contacted us with his thoughts. Hi, David Campiti sent me the link to your podcast for issue number three of Quantum Leap. Generally well done. You were spot on with most of your comments. Let me give you some context. Number one. C. Winston Taylor was quite a coup for innovation. He was a one-time president of the Society of Illustrators in Los Angeles, and this was his first and, unless I'm missing something, only work for comics. He did all of our QL covers, and a couple of Lost in Space ones as well. The general layout of the covers was usually mine, and number three was no exception. I wanted Owl's flamboyant dress to include a green fur coat, making him look almost like a Christmas tree, and Winston nailed it. He used his own kids and their neighborhood friends as models for the kids in line. Number two, budget limitations and time constraints kept us from using Winston on the interiors and our original artist flaked out and bailed on us after issue one. So I had to rely on a rotating roster of artists for the series until issue number eight, when Mike Diodato Sr. took over. Sometimes the art was hit or miss, but my only real editorial mandate was that we were paying for the likeness rights, so Sam and Al had to look as much like Scott and Dean as possible. In Andy's defense, I will say that the bits you liked most, especially the stockings, were all him. I didn't direct him to do that, and it wasn't in the script. I loved it. Number three. The conceit of the series was to have Sam leap into someone of a certain occupation and have my writers be part of that occupation in real life. For instance, issue number two involving the legal system in Ohio was written by Bob Ingersoll, a public defender in the Cleveland court system. Issue number four's game show scandal story was written by an actual writer-slash-researcher for TV's Jeopardy. No one had experience as a real-life Santa, not even a mall one, I looked, so I tagged in John Holland, who I knew as a writer could handle whimsy. Since I can't remember the second story in issue number three, I guess I'll have to agree with your critique. Again, time and budgetary constraints. C'est la vie. Once again, well done, Hayden. I hope my comments can help with future podcasts. Merry Christmas.
5: Who's the naughty or nice? I do.
8: You'll never know which house you'll turn up
0: in, except on Quantum Leap Wednesday. All right, so it is time for trivia, and joining us is Hayden and Amanda. How are you guys doing? Hi, Hi how are it? you, Chris? Hi, Merry Christmas, one and all.
4: Yep. Merry Christmas.
0: So, it's Boxing Day here. Boxing Day. So w- what kind of gifts do you have for us? Tell us about some of the trivia that's in this episode.
4: All right, well... um First of all, the really obvious one is uh, Al calls Blake a real Scrooge, which is after the character in the Charles Dickens novel A Christmas Carol. In fact, the entire episode is a homage to this timeless novel.
0: From what I've heard, because that's one of my favorite books, and I read it every year at Christmas. And from what I've heard, Christmas was sort of a moribund, even looked, a, looked down upon holiday. And it was the popularity of A Christmas Carol that, that brought it back, that, that made people celebrate it uh, with renewed uh, fervor, maybe. or it, 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 just, it, it made Christmas a thing again. And for that, I'm ever grateful, because it's always a thing for me.
4: Well, I've always got to watch at least one thing about A Christmas Carol at some point throughout the Christmas season. Um, Me too. Usually the Quantum Leap episode, but there are many, many others. <laughs> what I think is the funniest one that I recently saw was um, the Flintstones did a play where they they put on the play of A Christmas Carol and mind you, this is thousands of years BC, long before Christ was born. So,
0: <laughs> Well, here's the real question, though. And I think I remember seeing that when I was a kid. But is that uh, with Gazoo or without Gazoo?
4: I think it was in it, yeah. It's, um, I don't think it's part of the original Flintstone series. I think it's like one that was done like the last 15 years or so.
0: Right, right. So, okay, dum-dums, what do you have next? <laughs>
11: Um, While it's not explicitly stated in the episode, um, it's the box of Michael Blake's childhood photographs um, that Sam finds in the closet later in the episode that uh, exposes the street that Blake grew up in while they're walking down with the, uh, the children from the mission yelling familiar phrases from his past and the discussion from Blake's childhood friend, which fulfills the job that would have been taken by the ghost of Christmas past. One could consider that Sam... To uh, He had taken on the role of the ghost as he was the mastermind behind these events, and this happens later on in the episode.
0: Yeah, well, Sam is obviously, he's forced to do both. He's forced to embody both aspects because there are no real ghosts, and... It just, I guess, here's the funny thing. If you're going to be doing a Christmas Carol, what I like about this episode is that it doesn't adhere so strictly. You don't have act one, act two, act three. It's just sort of, it, it hews generally to the structure of, of that terrific story, but it does it in its own way, in a way that's different enough where you're not just sitting saying, oh, here we go. All right, goes to Christmas past, goes to Christmas present. Oh, goes to Christmas future. No, they did it so uniquely. That's what I love about this episode. But what else we got?
11: As far as the Ghost of Christmas Future, Al later on appears as a hologram, passing himself off as a ghost, and explicitly takes on the role of the Ghost of Christmas Future. The fact that he's unable to be touched and can use relocation effects to appear to be floating or teleporting, and his use of the futuristic late 20th century technology to to project future photographs, news reports, and Blake's own tombstone to back up his claim. While successful, he showed a rare lack of professionalism by not doing his research, dressing up in chains like Jacob Marley instead of <laughs> black robes, uh, like the Ghost of Christmas Future, which obviously gave him away to Blake.
4: I thought that was so funny, and I'm so glad they went that way because <laughs> it would have. I mean, you, I don't think you could believe the Owl character as death. He's got to be something flamboyant.
12: Yeah,
0: and there was also a great slapdash quality to his costume, and that fits in perfectly with the time frame that we're working with here. It's not like they could hire a costume designer, you know, somewhere under a mountain in where's Quantum Beam Stelling's Gate, New Mexico, right? So, it's uh, they they had to make do with what they had, and I thought it it uh, it's just another little element of this episode that makes it work so well.
4: Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, in the 1975 news broadcast, there's a note that the New York Knicks have done it again. This is likely referring to the game that was played on December the 23rd in 1975, in which the Knicks bit the Milwaukee Bucks 110 to 108. Hmm.
0: Okay, that's for all the sports fans out there. I think that might have been the last time the Knicks won. Being a New Yorker, I don't, you know. It's just osmosis. I know a lot of people are disappointed with the Knicks.
4: <laughs> As an Australian, I don't really understand what many of those words mean. So I read that pretty much verbatim from Beyond the Mirror Image. Thanks again, Matt, for writing it for us. This is where most of the trivia has come from.
0: Well, Hayden, you're not the only one that doesn't know what you're talking about. I mean, that's all sports stuff and I don't know sports stuff. How about you, Amanda? Are you a big, big basketball fan? <laughs> no.
4: no. So, so moving <laughs> so on. What other trivia do oh, we basketball have? Basketball is it?
0: Yeah, so it's <laughs> basketball. Football? Oh. No, Knicks are basketball. Hardwood. Yes. Okay. Sneakers. Bouncing.
11: Mm-hmm. So later in the episode, we um, see more about Blake. Um, and speaking of Blake, the actor who played him, Charles Rocket. Um, returns to quantum leap in season four's leap for Lisa as commander Riker and sad parallel to a little miracle rocket. Tragically, tragically took his own life in 2005.
3: Right.
0: Um, that is sad. And it's funny, um, the way he weaves in and out of this episode, you had heard earlier in the interview that, uh, Jared Lennon, who did his scene with Charles rocket, worked with him again as well in that Robert Altman movie. And it's just a tragic loss. He was such a good actor. He was certainly was. Yeah, by all means. By all means. He was was the shining star of this episode. I think even more than Sam because he had so much more to carry. And uh, he did it all so wonderfully.
4: All right. Well, it appears that the project has sorted out its energy problems. Uh, If we remember back to Pool Hall Blues, the project could barely muster enough power to beam a thin line into Sam's view. But now they're able to project entire buildings and skyscrapers for news broadcasts.
0: I'm going to say because show.
4: Yes. yes. <laughs> it is nice, though, that um, as the series progresses, it does seem like the project is evolving, which you probably would expect as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
11: Yeah. And the writing uh, shows that in itself, too. And speaking of writers, writer Sandy Fries describes himself as a spiritual person. So wanting to infuse an episode with this nature, he explained the ending as a Rorschach test, referring to this classic psychological test in which a person's observations are tested in order to form conclusions about them, saying that if you think the star in the sky is a miracle, it is. And if you think that it is not a miracle, then it is for you. But I think it's still a miracle that you're not ready to perceive. And he described the initial story meeting as very, very cool.
0: And I think it just works no matter what level you want to see it on. It just gives such an emotional cap to the episode. So good work, Sandy.
4: Now, Milan Nikshik, who played the mirror image of Reginald Pearson, had a very quick turnaround for his performance. He received news of the audition on Friday, October 19th, 1990. He had the audition on the Saturday and was cast later that day. (laughs) Jean-Pierre Doliac measured him for a suit on the Monday, which was completed by the Tuesday, and he filmed his sequence on the Wednesday. So it was all done within less than a week after his first hearing of the opportunity. And he later recalled it as a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience.
11: Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> also, later, Jarrett Lennon, who played the tiny boy who owned the toy Sheldon, the horse, was a fan of Quantum Leap at the time that he was cast, and he has great memories of Charles Rocket.
0: Oh, yeah, he certainly did have some great memories. And as you guys heard, um, he's he, nothing but good things to say.
4: Mm. Yeah. All right, we've got a few goofs as well. There's a reference to Nikita Khrushchev visiting Disneyland. He was supposed to do this during his first visit to the U.S. in late 1959, but it was cancelled for security reasons. He visited the U.S. again in 1960, but there were not any plans for him to visit the theme park. By late 1962, which is when the episode was set, the Cuban Missile Crisis was in full swing, and a further visit seemed very unlikely. It certainly wasn't something in the public eye at the time.
7: Mm Mm-hmm. So that was a little bit of a
11: historical whoops on the part of the writers.
4: <laughs> yeah, I don't think that they were really planning for people making a podcast 25 plus years later to go and check, So, Yeah, I think the, <laughs> yeah, sometimes <exactly>. they'll, <laughs> they'll take
0: that that liberal approach to history just to give you a flavor of what was going on in the era, right? Just to bring mm-hmm. you back, right? And you know, that's like, exactly your textbooks it. on the shelves, that's all. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, they didn't <laughs> have Not the for... internet back then either.
7: Right, Right,
11: exactly. They have that problem, too. Now, for the the middle of the episode, when Al says it's in the middle of July in his time, his cigar is off screen. The angle changes after Blake shouts for Sam. Suddenly, it's in his mouth.
0: Are we pointing out continuity errors? Because I noticed a huge one.
4: Oh, let's hear it. it
0: well it's it's not that huge, but it's at the very end when Blake is at the end of his rope and he's on the street crying and it's, he's just he's distraught and his hair is all disheveled and he's sort of wild and he stumbles to the mission door and then you you switch to the point of view from inside the mission as uh Captain Downey opens the door and he's standing in the doorway and his hair is perfectly quaffed
11: (laughs) oh i
4: saw that too
0: it's combed back beautifully and it took me out of the scene just a little bit i was like damn it
4: all right i've got a better one for you i did have that one written down here but here's a better one for you all right now after blake is asking for help from captain downey in that scene Al changes out of his ghost of Christmas future costume and back into his Hawaiian shirt yes, (laughs) and removing his ghostly makeup extremely quickly in the space of a couple of minutes.
0: Yeah. I think they had magic cold cream in the uh, imaging chamber. I'm not sure.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Quite possible. Quite possible.
11: Yes. And also in that, in that particular area of the episode, the perspective of the holographic Blake Plaza is way off center.
0: I, I thought that, that because it would hmm, – now this is just going to be maybe too real world. You're right. It was off-center, but I think it represents how they would change the entire area. They just have the footprint to work with. They don't have to keep what's there on the ground. All they have to do is clear it out and start from scratch. So as long as they stay within that parcel, they can build it any way they want, as high as they want. So that's the way I saw it. You're right. It it did sort of take me out sense. of it, saying, "Well, it's now it's on an angle. It's like the Flatiron Building, and yeah, like we're <laughs> we're facing the street." And yeah, I mean, it was probably just a way for the effects department to give depth to the effect as well. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff going
4: on. All right. Now, the photo that Sam finds at the start is labeled Michael Blakowski's eighth birthday, 1928 which means that he must have been born in 1920, but the headstone at the end gives his birth year as 1922.
11: Whoopsie. Somebody couldn't do their math very well.
4: (laughs) They needed me on the crew, obviously.
11: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes. And when the Rolls Royce pulls out before Blake discovers the pictures, there are modern cars from the
4: seventies and eighties visible.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, unavoidable. When you're shooting on location.
4: Yeah. You could probably barricade the road off so that only what you want is in the scene.
0: Yeah, but the thing is, if there is a public space beyond that barricade, people can come and go as they please. There should be PAs. I, trust me, I've had this job. PAs that lock. They, say, they call it block and lock or lock and block the set so that you're basically standing there like a bouncer if you're on location to make sure nobody walks into the shot. And sometimes people, they don't care. They're just like, I got to go. And I imagine that's ten times harder if you're trying to, you know, stand with your arms folded in front of an oncoming car.
3: So yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: yeah. Okay. Now, after his visit to the past, Blake is clearly drowning his sorrows a little, staring into space and speaking of the things that he owns. But by the next scene, he's stumbling around acting as if he's blind drunk. Maybe there's a bit of time dilation going on there. It is a time travel show, perhaps.
0: How how long did we see him sitting there? We could have just been at the end of his binge and he's sitting down. When you're drinking sitting down, you don't know how it's going to hit you until you stand up. So That's kind of the way I
4: see it. Yeah, especially if you're sitting down in a hot tub while you're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have to drink
0: uh, in some of the places you drink, Hayden. That sounds like a lot more fun.
11: <laughs> I don't drink at all, so I don't know. <laughs>
4: Oh, you're missing out. Uh,
11: uh, Well, at least I don't get (laughs) hangover. Okay, so the Blake Plaza sign notes Robert F. Wagner as the mayor of New York City. The mayor at this time was Robert F. Wagner Jr. It would be unusual for the junior to be dropped as his father was a long political career in the same arena, and the younger Wagner distinguished himself
4: with the suffix. Again, no internet back then. Alright, now when Blake lunges through Al twice, he messes up the covers in his bed. However, when he turns back around after the second attempt, the bed sheets are neat again. Mm-hmm. I wish I had made that efficient.
11: Yeah, I was just gonna say magic maid.
0: Yeah, where was what was the name of the hell uh the, the maid with the big bust? BB. BB, BB so where was Make BB, BB the hiding the in, in that
11: bedroom? <laughs> <BB>. <laughs> Darn it, Hayden, you stole my line. <laughs>
0: all right so uh we i think we've we've gone the gamut we've gone from the star in the sky to bb's boobs so is there anything left guys
11: yes there's a black um, rectangle covering the middle of the screen when the star appears and it can be seen covering the glow of the top right of the star
0: wait so is this a visual artifact from the effect or did they capture a ufo in the sky over the New York street of Universal's backlot.
4: Oh, well, spoiler alert, UFOs are real in the Quantum Leap universe, so it's possible. They were setting
0: up for season five, is what you were saying.
4: Quite possibly. (laughs) I gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and one last little one. When Al projects the 1975 news report onto the side of the building, Sam is looking at it, but then we see a wide angle shot and Sam is facing away. So he's obviously got eyes in the back of his head. Why not? He can do anything, so he can see out the back of his head too. Exactly. <laughs> there you go,
0: Sam, man for all occasions. All right, guys. Well, that's uh, a lot of terrific trivia. Thanks so much for bringing it to us.
3: Yeah, no
11: thank you worries. for letting us read it.
3: And merry Christmas.
11: <laughs> merry Christmas. Lots of presents. <laughs>
0: Roll out the holly, because it's time for a very special Christmas edition of the Quantum Leap Radio Sightings. I'm Christopher DeFilippis, and here we are at Season 3, Episode 10, A Little Miracle. And there's no need for holiday blues radio nerds, because this Christmas Leap does feature a radio. And not just any radio, but a 1962 Zenith model MJ-1035, also known as the Stereo Symphonaire, which Zenith touted as the world's most fabulous radio. You can see the MJ-1035 and the Salvation Army mission when Sam is trying to convince Captain Downey to Scrooge Blake. The AM-FM set is sitting on a table screen right, at such a sharp angle to the camera that I had a really hard time identifying it. But thanks to its large wooden cabinet, an enormous round tuning dial that dominates the top left corner of the set, and a uniquely indented right-sided gold speaker grill, the radio was unmistakable once I pegged it. Not only that, but I was lucky enough to find an ad for the radio online in an archived edition of Harper's Magazine dated July 1962, which means that this radio would have been readily available on Sam's leap date of December 24th in that same year. But though it's not technically anachronistic to the time period, it certainly is unlikely that this radio would have been found in a Salvation Army mission. Like I said, Zenith touted the Symphonair as the world's most fabulous radio, so fabulous that the Harper's ad takes up two full pages, telling you just how fabulous. It was apparently the world's first deluxe four-speaker stereo FM table radio, with unparalleled stereo tuning, FM detection, and stereo separation, you know, if the ad is to be believed. The set achieved these feats of fidelity with the help of a second speaker that could be placed up to 15 feet from the main receiver to give maximum stereo separation. And while this might all sound impossibly quaint in our surround sound reality, this radio really was state-of-the-art for its time. So much so that the MJ-1035 retailed for $199.95 in 1962. That's about $1,643 in today's money, which is a pretty penny indeed. So, unless the mission had an extremely generous benefactor, or a resident thief, I doubt they would have had this high-end set, even without the second speaker. But in keeping with the spirit of the season, I choose to believe that it's just one more Christmas miracle in this heartfelt episode. Now, if you want to see the Zenith MJ-1035 in all holiday splendor, Along with all the other radios that have appeared on Quantum Leap up until this point, you can do so on my website at deflipside.com. Just click on the Quantum Leap podcast link and look for the radio dial. This is your Quantum Leap radio guru wishing a Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Hey everybody, it's Chris again, and I just wanted to let you know on the next episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, we will be talking about episode 41, Runaway.
5: You pig! Ow! What, what are you
0: doing? Shut up back there! I'm a kid.
5: You're a twerp! Ow! I said shut up! She called me monkey boy? She did, she yeah, called me well, monkey boy. That's her job, boy. hey! You're 13? She's your big sister, that's her job. 13?
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Let's see, your name is Butchie Rickett And you and your family just left your home in Pahokee, Florida For a 9,000 mile trip across the country And when the fireworks go off tonight Your mom, Butchie's mom, runs out on the family Well, they never see or hear from her again Please don't let it happen to Emma and her family
8: How come you decide when and what we do?
5: Because I'm the dad.
8: So that makes you boss? <laughs> of
5: course. Maybe if we all just... Boichy. What's going on, Mom?
8: You wouldn't understand.
5: Come on, I'm 13.
8: Yeah, my little man.
5: Afraid of being alone?
8: I mean, I'm already by myself most of the day. It's just not like I thought it would be. Now, this this doesn't mean that I don't love you and Alex and Daddy. just that I um, want something more.
4: Is Albie gone?
7: Yes, he is.
4: So do you think it's time we let the cat out of the bag?
11: Oh, I don't know. Do you think it's a good idea?
4: Well, look, everyone who listens to this show is completely mental. They know something's not right.
11: (laughs) Well, I guess in that case, since you put it that way, I suppose letting the cat out of the bag might be the best option.
4: Yeah. Well, you're not actually Heather, are you? No, I'm not. No. So who are you?
11: I am actually Amanda.
4: And why are you here, Amanda? And why does Albie think you're Heather?
11: Well, because I apparently was doing my podcast and leapt out into Heather. I think I'm here to help Alby get the Quantum Leap podcast back off the ground. For some reason, the universe wants him to keep doing it. And so that's why I'm here.
4: Yeah, and uh, in case you haven't noticed, everyone, um, do you really think that a house is going to carry me all the way from Australia to America? <laughs> that's just uh, that's just the, some um, the hand link and Ziggy doing some awesome stuff. Took a hell of a lot of power to do, and uh, oh, for crying out loud, Gushy, please turn up the aircon. Wearing this ugly Christmas sweater in forty degree heat is unbelievably hot. <gasps> oh, please put the aircon back on. <laughs> yeah yeah so so i'm here as um amanda's hologram and uh yeah we're here to put the Quantum Leap podcast back on track let's just say uh yeah serenity's happy to see me she's so little she can still see me and uh albie and amanda are on such a tight wavelength that uh albie can see me as well which is great thank goodness your plan worked and uh, yeah, all our listeners are completely mental, so that's why you can all hear me as well. So,
11: <laughs> But they're completely mental in the best possible way.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Who wants to be normal anyway?
11: Nobody. It's boring.
4: <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So while we're here, Amanda, um, you do your own podcast about Dean Stockwell, don't you?
11: Yes, I do. It's called The Dean's List.
4: Well, while we've got you here, um, besides this Quantum Leap episode, uh, does – Has Dean Stockwell done any other Christmas shows or Christmas um, movies or anything like that?
11: It's interesting you should ask me that, because I was actually working on a podcast episode about one of his other Christmas works when I leapt into Heather.
4: Uh, Okay. Uh, Well, maybe you'd like to share it with all of us.
11: Sure. Yes, that episode is called Twas the Fight Before Christmas, and it was an episode from a TV show done back in the 70s called McLeod.
4: Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't you um, do your podcast now and I'll go keep Serenity company because she's um, running amok. And uh, yeah, I'll be back very soon.
7: Tonight's episode is about one of Dean's two Christmas special appearances on television. Season seven, episode two of McLeod, titled Twas the Fight Before Christmas. I'd like to pause here for a moment to especially thank Mr. Hayden McQueenie for acquiring this episode of our show. Thanks, mate. Twas the Fight Before Christmas is an action-packed, if not slightly confusing, Christmas story. It has about four different stories going on at one time, one of which involves our darling Dean. When we first meet Dean in the episode, we find he is playing a drug dealer named Pete Lancaster, who was first seen in the episode running in and announcing that his connection wouldn't deal in a buy for a girl named Peggy, who is experiencing painful withdrawal symptoms. The stuff, we later find out, is morphine. The morphine needed to give the girl her fix costs $500, and he announces he didn't have that kind of money. Peggy's boyfriend Scott, played by star Dennis Weaver's son Robert, announces that he will get the morphine any way he has to. Next, we see Dean's character of Pete drive up to the hospital with Scott and Peggy. They hold up the druggist in the hospital just long enough to get Peggy the morphine she needs. She shoots up with it, and a few moments later, a security guard walks in on them. Pete is armed and shoots the man in a state of panic, and they end up being chased by hospital security. One of the security guards shoots Pete in the leg, and they end up in the children's ward. However, there is a Christmas party taking place, and the police department's own Chief Clifford is Santa Claus. A hostage situation takes place, and it's up to McLeod to save the day. The remaining time of the episode contains much drama, action, and stressed-out conversations between Pete and the other two antagonists of the story. Scott doesn't really know what he wants, but keeps insisting he wants to demand for a helicopter and enough money to get him out of the States and safely away with Peggy. Pete seems to be more interested in just leaving the hospital, and doesn't want any part of the hostage situation, and spends most of his time questioning Scott, asking him what his plans are and what logic there is in demanding a helicopter. This part of the episode is where Dean has the most lines, and even then, it's not much more than four or five short sentences. During these minutes, the lives of all in the children's ward are at stake. Time ticks by slowly, and everyone involved in the story is getting more on edge. Finally, at the climax of the episode, McLeod swings in through the window and apprehends Scott. Meanwhile, Chief Clifford grabs Pete and pins him against the wall, and the episode ends abruptly. It's a pretty messily contrived story without much consistency, except for the Christmas theme. Dean doesn't have many lines, but has a decent amount of screen time. It is unfortunate that he is seen more than he has heard, as Scott kind of takes over the position of leadership in the group. That being said, McLeod is a serial television show that often has several storylines going on at once, and first-time viewers will easily become confused just jumping in on an episode mid-series such as I did with this episode. So, as usual, it's best to watch the series from start to finish if one wishes to understand all that's going on. All in all, Twas the Fight Before Christmas is an okay episode, but it definitely doesn't do Dean justice. A much better Christmas episode to enjoy Dean's performance in would be A Little Miracle from Season 3 of Quantum Leap. I recommend you check that out this holiday season.
4: All right, let me perform some of some magic on this hand link. I've used my Insta hologram filter to make me look like a ghost. How do I look, Serenity?
2: Ha ha ha, Hayden, you look silly.
12: <laughs>
4: <laughs> oh, come on, I'm supposed to look scary. <laughs> don't worry
11: i'll be scared of his own shadow you're fine
4: Ooh. hey i'll be
6: wake up ah uh, hey hayden what are you doing
4: i am the ghost of podcasts future
6: is this some kind of joke you know i'm not in the mood for this
4: i am the ghost of podcasts future
6: you are so rude First, you literally drop in unannounced, then you have a party in my house and force me into doing the podcast just when I've got nothing to do.
4: Are you hard of hearing? I am here to show you your podcast's future.
6: That does it. I'm going to knock you all the way back to Australia. Wow, you're faster than you look. I, I didn't even see you move. That's
10: because I didn't. <laughs>
6: Heather? You okay, Albie? Uh, Heather, help! Help!
11: What's wrong?
6: Uh, c- 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 can't you see what ha- H- Hayden's doing? No, Hayden? He- he's right there, floating above us. You must have been dreaming.
4: Boy, like a nightmare. Ha <laughs> ha me in the studio. Don't make me have to come looking for you.
11: Are you sure Hayden told you to meet him here?
4: Ah! He sure did. (laughs) He's right
6: there. Heather, please, tell me you can see him. Sorry, I don't see anything.
11: Why don't you find out what he wants?
4: Uh, Hayden? I can hear her. Strap yourself in. This is gonna be a bumpy ride. So, you don't think you can handle the podcast anymore? That's okay. You don't need to keep outdoing yourself. But just have a listen to some of your own listeners.
11: When I get a job, what am I gonna listen to on the way to work?
6: I'm sure they have plenty to listen to still. What about all the other podcasts by Baron Space Productions?
4: I'm glad you asked.
0: Life changes, things happen. And, you know, it goes on. You know, jobs end, dogs die, partners get busy. What do you do? Stop. <laughs>
4: <laughs> what? None of them continue with their shows. Why would they? You're the one who brought everyone together. And the reason they do it is because they have so much fun doing them with you.
6: But surely they understand that I need to put my family first and
4: make sure Serenity is brought up right. Speaking of Serenity, she follows in her father's footsteps.
1: Hey there, this is Serenity situation, like coming to you almost live from Florida, New Jersey. And you know, this is the Jersey Shore podcast. It's a Jersey thing. In, like, breaking news, the Civil War is finally ending with President Snooky's smush, smush attacks reducing the Great Wall of California to garbage. You hear me? It's cabbage! Uh, I'm sorry, I haven't had my coffee yet. Uh, anyway, they, like, surrendered and stuff. But on to the most, like, important topic...
6: Stop, stop, stop. I can't take any more.
4: Oh, Albie, you don't want to leave before the end of the movie, do you? It's such a peaceful ending.
11: The Quantum Leap Podcast never
6: aired another episode. Never? Oh, I, don't, I don't want the Quantum Leap Podcast to die. I love making it. I've, I've made so many friends through it, and it's such a great product that I'm so proud of. Daddy, can you
2: please remove this
6: comic book? Sure we can, my little leaper.
4: Uh, We did it, Amanda. Albie gets his spark back, and the Quantum Leap podcast returns in 2018 better than ever. They get to the end of the series and even do some of the novels and comics.
11: That's such great news, Hayden. Do you think Albie would have continued podcasting if you hadn't told Serenity to ask him to read her another story?
4: Uh, I didn't ask her to. Ho, 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 ho.
11: Merry Christmas, Hayden.
4: Merry Christmas, Amanda.
12: For Christmas, only a hippopotamus will do. Don't want a doll, no dinky tinker toy. I want a hippopotamus to play with and enjoy. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. I don't think Santa Claus will mind do you, he won't have to use a dirty chimney flue just bring him through the front door that's the easy thing to do i can see me now on christmas morning creeping down the stairs oh what joy and what surprise when i open up my eyes to see a hippo Hippopotamus for Christmas, only a hippopotamus will do, no crocodiles, no rhinoceroses, I only like hippopotamuses, and hippopotamuses like me too. Hippo would eat me up, but then teacher says a hippo is a vegetarian there's lots of room for him in our two cars. I'd feed him there and wash him there and give him his massage. I can see me now on Christmas morning creeping down the stairs. Oh, what joy and what surprise when I open up my eyes to see a hippo hero standing there. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Only a hippopotamus will do crocodiles or rhinoceroses i only like hippopotamuses and hippopotamuses like me too please
6: wow i can't believe hayden was a ghost all along
2: hayden is not a good he's a wizard oh albie For getting you back into the podcasting mood, Hayden is nothing short of an angel.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. Hosted by Albie, Heather, Hayden, Amanda, Chris, and Suzanne. With voice talents and contributions from Zoe Dean, Hayden McQueenie, Christopher Filippis, Juan Miro, and jolly old St. Nick. Visit us at QuantumLeapPodcast.com. To support the show, please go to Patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher Filippis, and Juan Muro. The production assistant is Jesse Newman. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap podcast is Albert Burge. Juan Miro, Christopher DeFilippis, and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit baronspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production.
4: <laughs> oh God. <laughs> oh my God. Could you imagine if we were recording this? That would be funny. I don't even want to think. No, just no. <laughs> oh well, never mind.
5: <laughs> Michael Blakowski, july fourteenth, nineteen twenty two. Al. He changed his name. Well, no wonder we couldn't find any information on him. Carol the Bells. I'll tell you it looks like he started in a slightly different neighborhood. Yeah. All right, have Ziggy figure out if he can if he can. Uh,
12: looks like you started out in a slightly different neighborhood. You don't have
4: to comment in the lens. Mom, you did good! <laughs> I <thought> you <laughs> oh, that was cute. <laughs> did you hear that? I did. <laughs> Mom, you did good! Merry Christmas, everyone.
6: Cotton, the fabric of our lives.
2: It was... A moder- It was a modern version of, the, of, of a Christmas carol. You can't enjoy your life with a building, if that makes sense.
6: Unless it has furry walls.
2: <laughs> I think that only goes so far. Okay.
6: Because he's usually got to act like Al's not there, so people don't think he's crazy, but he's the only one that sees Al. But now he saw Al along with Blake and had to act like, I'm just going I'll cut that out. <laughs> I love you. I love you. Oh, we're together in season three, by the way. Oh, are we? Yes. Romantic.
2: Hey, buddy.
6: So Blake says uh, she's beautiful when he's seeing... So Blake is... Blake slips out that he thinks that Captain Laura Downey is beautiful. Blake slips out that he thinks Captain Laura Blake... He had that George Bailey moment at the end where he was on the ground and weeping because he saw what his life was going to be like, kind of, in an alternate reality, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Is it kind of like when Daisy comes back from the land of Diz with the green slippers on? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Yeah. So... (laughs) so I only mention that because they're so obvious about it. Daisy, I think you had a dream.
2: You know that it's Minnie Mouse, right? What did I say? Daisy.
6: Yeah. Oh. Minnie, I think you must have fallen asleep and had a dream. And then Mickey goes, Why? Where did you get those green shoes? And then she goes, Maybe it wasn't a dream, right, everybody? <laughs> N- not that I've seen
2: that 82 times. Please keep that in the podcast, at least in the bloopers. All right. Oh, favorite time of the year. Oops, say that again. Favorite time of the... <laughs> we miss you. We, we miss you. We miss you a Merry Christmas.
8: Pearson, you forgot to tell.
2: Joy
1: to the world, (laughs) the Lord is come.
0: (laughs) All right, everybody. Merry Christmas. God bless us all, everyone.
1: God bless us, everyone.